Dre Harrison here, lead host and now editor of the Motorsport 101 podcast, coming to you live through the power of post-production. Okay, allow me to explain. Welcome to episode 400 of Motorsport 101, and this is a special edition. One I've often nicknamed as one of the lost episodes of our history. What you're about to listen to was a special version of the show that we left on the cunning room shelf. Originally recorded back in December 2021, this was a two-hour retrospective on the career of the great Valentino Rossi, MotoGP's greatest rider ever and one of the most recognisable and iconic figures in motorsport history, off the back of his retirement at the time. Now, sadly, around this time, we got really busy with other projects. Our run into Christmas on Motorsport 101 is loaded with yearly traditions, and it takes a lot of work. Unfortunately, we kind of put this one on the cunning room shelf while we focused on catching up and getting other episodes out. Until now, I loved recording this episode, and I really wanted to save it and get it out there. So here we are, just 10 months later. We thought, given that MotoGP's in a hot title fight right now and there's a lot of races to close out the year, now would be a good time to release some more really good MotoGP content. Now, a couple of disclaimers here. Sadly, I was using my old microphone back then, so I don't sound quite as good in the full episode then as I do now. But on the flip side, you also get Ryan Eric King back as well. And we all love Ryan, so that's a plus. So, with all of that out of the way... Here is the 400th episode of Motorsport 101, The Doctor, the Valentino Rossi retrospective. Rossi is the 125cc world champion for 1997. Rossi wins the race, he wins his second world championship. Rossi 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 Valentino Rossi will take victory and the world title. Bravo Valentino Rossi, un'altra volta. Valentino Rossi wins his fifth world title. It's Rossi on the Yamaha, he is the world champion. Che spettacolo! Seven world titles. Valentino Rossi. Bravo, bravo, bravo. Complimenti. The 2008 MotoGP World Champion. Valentino Rossi becomes the World Champion. Fantastico. Valentino Rossi is back. Rossi J. Vince. 150 Grand Prix victory. A long, long uh, journey, but uh, I'm very proud of my career because I, I enjoy it a lot. This is a special edition of Motorsport 101 on this occasion. Uh, we didn't have uh, any mainstream series to talk about last week at a gap week. So we thought there was a little something we were missing from the end of the MotoGP season. A certain someone retired from bike racing, and we felt it was only fair to give him his due diligence and give Ben Spees a full retirement <laughs> retrospective. Ben Spees retired oh, sorry. Uh, years ago. This is the Daniel Petrucci uh, special we were doing, right? Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Um, I thought we this, were this gathered week. here today to mourn Jonathan Ray's championship streak. No, amazingly not. Apparently, according to my editor, it says here that we've got to talk about Valentino Rossi. Apparently, he's worth talking about for an extended period of time. So, hey, I guess I've dressed up perfectly for the occasion without even realizing. So, we'll go into that over the next hour or so. We'll be talking about his career. The, the timeline of his legendary career, 26 years in Grand Prix motorcycle racing, some of the rivalry, some of the staple flashpoints that define the man's career. 
um, as well as his legacy and the, f- the future of him in the sport and, well, out of the sport now and what he could be doing, what he's left behind, the state of MotoGP as it goes. It's going to be a fun retrospective. It's going to be a good time for all involved. So, let's go around the horn real quick. First up, Mr. Cam Buckley, how's, how's it going down there? Um, the dogs are barking, the TV LEDs are shining, and my computer's LEDs are shining bright fucking yellow on your section of the screen. <laughs> Besides that, it's going great. But uh, hey, it's it's yellow, so it all fits. Um, right. King, how's it going up there, man? Glad we got you in 4K, so uh, this, this, <laughs> this is going to be on the internet forever. You know this. I'm archiving this on a DVD-R <laughs> in case YouTube ever goes down. Oh, so, so it's going to be in the cloud now as well, just in case. Just in case. I've got, a, I've got a, myself a hard copy right here. Yeah, I think oh. I might ship it up to that uh, that seed vault in Norway in case a nuclear war ever takes out the planet. <laughs> <laughs> we have survival seeds, we have water and food, and that picture of Dre that time it was in Valentino Rossi gear. <laughs> Apparently, that is a matter of great importance. Who, who, who'd have thought it? Uh, who knew? But uh, I didn't know what, what the, such the pressing emergency is. It, guys, it's, I'm in the yellow. It's not that radical. Honest. Uh, you wrote a whole book people. about this. I might have done. Um, <laughs> we don't talk about that. Uh, but, uh, RJ, how's it going, man? Oh, it's going great. Um, here, here to announce that... Um, Nobody plays baseball anymore. That's right, nobody. No, Nobody plays baseball. Yeah, you know, RJ, it has to be said, props to your team for winning the last ever World Series. Mm. Uh, I would uh, I would really hope that they sign Atlanta first baseman to a new contract. I, uh, <laughs> I really hope that that goes well. I hope Atlanta right fielder uh, has a successful rehab from his injuries. <laughs> Um, and we'll see who wins the uh, who wins the big uh, sweepstakes for all the notable free agents. Obviously, uh, Mets starting pitcher, uh, big name off the board right away. Oh all, all I'm gonna say is, if any major league ball club contacts any of you listening or watching, say no. Don't be a scab. Don't cross a pin. <laughs> <laughs> Look man, look, man, the only reason we talk, we kind of tolerated for Kevin Millar is because he was one of the fun people on that 2004 Red Sox team that didn't go all the way into that conservative grip. What's up, Kurt Schilling? <laughs> how's, that, uh, how's that game studio going, Kurt? That's things in Rhode Island. But enough about our bat. Thank you for tuning into our baseball podcast. Uh, we're going <laughs> to divert a bit and talk about some motorcycle racing because Valentino Rossi rode his last race a couple weeks ago. You might have heard about it. It happened. It was, it was a small deal. You know, it was a small family gathering uh, at the end of the race. And you, yeah, it was subtle. I don't know why people posted about it so much. I mean, really, I mean, all, all that was the entire paddock uh, parking up at the side of Valencia um, paying tribute. Besides that, it was a, wasn't a big deal at all. Almost um, as many people paid tribute to this man as Dale Earnhardt winning the Daytona 500 in 1998. Oh, yeah. Like, Suzuki had made their own special banner in the pit lane to say thank you, Rossi, as he rode past it down the pit lane. They weren't making any other banners for this season, to be fair. (laughs) And that's the the product of stagnation. 
Yay! No, never no, no, look. Look, if you're ever in a development war, never go. You know this last year's bike. Ah, don't change it. Yeah, Perfect. Exactly. Keep, keep, keep it exactly how it is. So uh, yeah, we'll be talking about that over the next hour or so. It's going to be a fun time. So before we do that, let's uh, quickly remind you where you can find us. We're on YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101 or on Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101 or on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. If you'd like to follow our personal handles, you can at Harrison101HD, at Ryan Eric King, at Roger J. O'Connell, and at cbuckley 917 You can follow us on Instagram at Motorsport 101 Pod. Check us out on there. Um, all our written content as well as our podcast are on our website, Motorsport101.com and if you should really like us, you can back us financially on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Five bucks gets you early to all of our audio content. You can upgrade to 10 for the video version. Where you, and you can get at Supporters Club access to our Discord server. Where you can listen to these episodes live as they're being recorded. Just like now. So, with that out of the way, let's talk about Chapter 1 of the Valentino Rossi retrospective here. Let's let's just get the numbers out of the way, because that's always fun, right? We like numbers. Let's get get some numbers in. We're big into achievements. We're big into quantifying achievements. Valentina Rossi achieved a lot over 26 years. Uh, Let's uh, let's go down this list. Uh, Across 432 races at all three levels, he won 115 races, 65 poles, 235 podiums, nine world titles, including five in a row in the premier class from 2001 to 2005. To put that in perspective, in that five-year span, he won 81, 51 out of 81 races with two different manufacturers. Uh, only four of the people had done that sort of thing, winning that much with two different manufacturers. Jeff Duke, Eddie Lawson, Giacomo Agostini, Casey Stoner. All pretty decent dudes, I assume, on motorcycles. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, this <laughs> Yeah, yeah, finish. they're all right. They're all right. 23 straight podium finishes, which is a record, along with his podium record. Um, the only man to win world championships with five different engine displacements, 125, 250, 500, And the longest winning career in Grand Prix history, uh, he had a month, uh, almost 21 years between his first and his last wins. He raced in more countries than anybody else. He has the most wins on a track on 11 different tracks, including Catalonia, Magello, Hareth, Phillip Island, Donington, and Sepang. And at Hareth 2018, he became the first rider to cover enough distance competition to do a lap of the Earth at its equator for 40,075 kilometers. And he still had more to go after that. Hold they on. called it the VR46 World Lap on Twitter. A lap of the world. Wow. Which, given that, you know, MotoGP races are, what, 40 minutes long, roughly? And, you know, we're talking about half the distance of one of an F1 races, roughly. A little bit less than half. Um, that's just ludicrous. Like, these numbers are outrageous. I mean, it's second all-time on wins. It's third all-time on, on pole positions. He has a record amount of Premier Class wins. He has the most Premier Class second places. And he has the most Premier Class third places. I found that when digging this up as well. So he's got a lockout of all-time all most of in, fir- in every individual step on the podium. Uh, so take that, medals. Johan Zarco. Um, <laughs> 
But um, yeah, it's, it's, it is it is mind-boggling when you, when you just again numbers are, are almost easy to translate in, in in terms of just outrageousness. I mean, he's got almost a hundred more Grand Prix than anybody else. You know, only I think Marquez and to him, you know, over half his Grand Prix he was on the podium, which is just ludicrous. I mean, yeah, think I've, just think for a second. Third all time on polls and famously described himself and others described him as a Sunday man, not a Saturday man. Yeah. Few favorite lines. He was a Sunday man. Not a particularly great qualifier. He's a Sunday man, Valentino. He'll come through on race. Not night. particularly he, great. He, he Only did. the third greatest of all time. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Doing another monster and Mark Marquez, who is probably the fastest rider we've maybe ever seen. Um, which is just ludicrous. You know, it's some of these numbers just absolutely outrageous. Yeah. Um, I but, found uh, I found something else interesting. Uh, these always interest me every time that they came up. Is is the uh, the top ten money earners in all of sports list? And, and this was kind of like just this thing that makes you realize, wow, Valentino Rossi really has some cachet because at the top of all these lists and like this is like prime Valentino Rossi, like Tiger Woods is in his prime. He's number one on the list. He's earning nine, nine figures a year. Then you get into guys like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Kimmy Räikkönen when he was on that fat Ferrari contract. David Beckham, LeBron James, Phil Mickelson, Manny Pacquiao. These are the only people that are ahead of Valentino Rossi was pulling in 35 mil a year when he was at Yamaha. He was they gave the face that man the Yamaha. bag. Yeah. He was the face of Yamaha as a brand. His his merch still tops out at 30 million a year. Like no one in motorsport makes money like that purely off merch sales. It's ludicrous. It's true. It, like, look, look at look at Dre over here. He, he is obviously a benefactor of the Valentino Rossi merch campaign. <laughs> let, like, let, just, let, let it be known. Yellow. I am a huge Inter Milan fan, as is Valentino Rossi. It's the only reason why the yellow shirt I thought was fitted. The cap was a freebie, okay? But there is not like 15 cans of Monster in my fridge behind me, I promise. Okay? Like, although if they if they want to make this happen, Monster, you know, digits, ring them up. You know, you, you've got my details still. Um, just, just throwing that out there. Like, I have been known to drink a lot of Monster. You shouldn't, but, you know, it happens. Um, it's it, it is it is absolutely ludicrous stuff. Like, and we'll talk more about a little bit more about Rossi the brand at the towards the back end of the show. But with being with Valentino Rossi's, it's his career is far more than just the numbers. Like, it is yeah. not just that. It's the flash points. It's the rivalries. The people he competed with that added to the mythos and the legend of Valentino Rossi. And there is a lot. Um, to to break down as to how we got to um, in in twenty twenty one we're talking about the man's retirement because there's a lot of people that made Rossi the man he is today and it's only fair we give them their due credit so we're going to go through the chronological timeline of Rossi some of the most important people he raced against and some key flashpoints in his career now let's go all the way back Nin the year is nineteen ninety six. Um, we've, we've just had the Olympics in Atlanta or going to have the Olympics in Atlanta later that year some guy called Valentino Rossi at age 18 makes his Grand Prix debut um, a 60 I should say he makes his Grand Prix debut with Aprilia 
Yeah, back when they're pretty, you had bikes in all three classes. Remember those days? Uh, <laughs> not hey, so much anymore. Good. Yeah, they were great back then. But the kings of the lightweights and, and, the, and the middleweight classes as well. But yeah, Valentino Rossi made his Grand Prix debut back in 1996. He hit the ground running pretty quickly. Just his 11th career race at Bruneau. That was his first ever Grand Prix win. Just his 11th ever Grand Prix, he won that. Um, yeah, it's, it, he hit the ground running pretty hard. Following year, comes back in 1997, wins the World Championship at a cakewalk, and he wins 11 out of the 15 races in that season, which I think is still, still a lightweight class record. No yeah. one has even come close. Uh, yeah, he racked up sits in a row during the summer from France to Great Britain, and that pretty much put it away. Yeah, yeah, it, it was over at that point in time. Yeah, still a record to this day. I think only Johan Mir has come closest to that since. I think Mir had 10 when he won the Moto3 title. Different different category now compared to what we called it then. But according to who you ask, the 125s were harder to ride back then. Um, and yeah, only added. Say they, were, to... uh, they were two strokes back then, weren't they? Yes, quite right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, they've. If you. If you who... Folklore, they were nasty little buggers to ride. So. Uh, yeah, Rossi won 11 out of 15 that season. Um, he moved up in 1998 uh, to the 250cc class. Um, you may now more familiarize it as Moto2. They 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 run 760cc bikes now in the middleweight category, but back then it was 250s. Um, again, stayed with Aprilia on the way up. Um, again, hit the ground running pretty much straight away. Was championship runner-up as a rookie. Um had many a battle with one Loris Caparossi, who at the time was a uh, was as a very very young lightweight champion himself. Although this was a few years back, he was in 1990. Believe it or not, a record yeah. that uh, uh, he was the youngest ever lightweight champ. Pedro Acosta was one day shy of beating that record. Ooh. Unlucky kid. <laughs> and again, I had to look that up during this recording. I was like, yeah, like uh, Acosta was one day too old to to beat. Uh, to be our Loris Caparossi's youngest lightweight champ record, believe it or not. Take it out yeah. by the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just, but curses. Think but, of yeah. all these Look, dudes that Rossi was coming up against, and you think, like, the best is... Because, like, this is his first encounter with the likes of Caparossi, Tetsuya Harada, Toru mm. Okawa. Yeah. Good riders, good riders. Get, Loris Caparossi... will only get better next year. Yeah. Loris had 29 top flight wins. He's now in MotoGP's Hall of Fame, not only with his work on the bike, but also as part of MotoGP Safety Commission. And his number, the number 65, has since been retired. So do not get it twisted. Loris was a damn good bike rider in his day. Um, an excellent bike rider. And yeah, Loris won that title in 98, but Rossi came back in 99 uh, to beat Loris for the title second time round in 99. Um, 2000. It was all yellow, Ooh. as Coldplay would say, on the album Parachutes. Because that was when he would make his Premier Class 500cc debut with Honda. Um, yeah, Honda, who were uh, still recovering from the uh, retirement of Mick Doohan. Um, it was a satellite package. Um, it wasn't the factory team. More well, in the sense. Um, well, he casually got full factory equipment. Yeah. McDoohan's crew chief, Jeremy Burgess, and a recovering McDoohan himself as his primary mentor. 
Yeah, we talked about it on a number of occasions, but there is a fascinating alternate universe where even if it was just for a year or two before it combusted or Dewan got hurt later on, Mick Dewan and Valentino Rossi as teammates at the premier level. (laughs) Could you imagine? The the greatest death lineup that never was, Mick Dewan, who was unbeatable until his career-ending crash, Mm-hmm. Valentino Rossi, who became unbeatable in the aftermath, and the greatest Grand Prix motorcycle in the history of motorcycles, the Honda NSR 500. What did Valentino Rossi do with his Peroni Nastro Zero sponsored, totally not a Honda factory wink wink nudge nudge by, oh, he wouldn't finish second in the championship ahead of Biaggi and Barros and Curlier and Caparossi and all these other dudes? Yeah, and only because he kind of had a slow start because if you know about the 500cc two-strokes, they were nasty motherfuckers to ride, and he took a few races to acclimatize. Two goose eggs, he crashed out of the first two rounds and then got the ball rolling. I think it took him nine races to win, and after that, the floodgates opened on he, he dumped the entire vending machine factory on everyone's chests. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Two thousand and one rolls up, and Rossi is the is, is the best bike rider in the world by this point in time. He would dominate the entire two thousand and one season. He won the championship by a hundred and six points. Now, which given it's twenty five for a win in MotoGP, he essentially won with four rounds to spare. Um, it was it, it was a colossal dick flattening. Rossi only has to finish eighth in this race to take the title. So Rossi leads. Biaggi second. Max Biaggi takes the lead. We ride with Valentino Rossi. Over the top they go. Rossi has the advantage. Rossi leads. The checkered flag is being readied side by side. Valentino Rossi wins the race. He wins the world title. What a MotoGP event. Rossi, the new world champion. Rossi wins here in Austria. Yeah, uh, he won 11 Grand Prix that season. Only one man in history has won more races in a top flight season uh, than him. We'll get to him later. There was a key man in the middle of that rival that we have to talk about. The Roman Emperor. One Max Biaggi. And, uh... Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) This is, uh... These two did not get along. From the start. Like, having to research this piece... I didn't even realize I was still writing about it. They were taking digs at each other as far back as the mid-90s, believe it or not. When Ross, when Biaggi was dominating the 250 class, he would go on to win four of those titles in the 250 classes back in the days when, you know, riders weren't so keen to just jump up the classes like we see today. You could make a career for yourself in, you know, as a lightweight or a middleweight yeah, back when, I, mean, it's, I think it's key to remember that uh, before kind of the current structure of how... Grand Prix motorcycle racing worked. There was the premier class, yes, with the 502 strokes, but the lower classes were championships in their own right. They had mm-hmm. open development and multiple manufacturers all fight, vying for supremacy. Yeah. They were in and of themselves their own standalone championships. Yeah, it's why there is an argument to be made that, like, when Mick Dewan was just flattening everybody for five straight years, 
people were more interested in the 250cc championship as the pound for pound best for the best it's like hey if the heavyweight boxing scene just absolutely sucks there's good middleweight there's good welterweight stuff going on yeah there was this thing that mick did where he was so good that he was changing engine configurations just to fuck with his teammates and still winning anyway uh, you know the the idea of the other classes being separate world championships the terminology still is around today it's a reason oh, yeah. why valentino it is. it's a reason why valentino is a nine-time world champion not a seven-time world champion it is but just the way the classes are approached yeah for the most the way, part it's, it's much it's far more controlled than it was uh at that point yeah you know? exactly exactly um, like they, like I said, Biagi was taking digs at Rossi in the nineties. They were like that was a there was a semi famous story again. I've got to give credit to Simon Patterson and the race for writing about this a couple months ago, where like at the time I think it was ninety seven, Max Biagi was dating a quite famous model. You might know her as Naomi Campbell um, at the time. Um, and when when Rossi got his first win at home at Mugello. Um, he celebrated with a sex doll that he nicknamed Claudia Schiffer just to take the piss out of Max Biaggi, which, guys, by today's standards, no, don't do that. Yeah, um, that would not fly in the year of our Lord 2021. No, don't do that. No. But that, it was quite obvious from even before they really started fighting each other in the same class these two did not get along they were described as chalk and cheese like one of the big flashpoints on this list was is, is japan and it's, it's a race that comes up quite a lot in montages if you've ever seen it because this is when you know max biagi was on a yamaha himself uh, the famous bright red yamaha with the number three he he ran uh, Valentino Rossi. Yamahas. yes uh, gonna love those tobacco sponsors back in the day um and, uh, yeah, he... Wino yamahas yeah <laughs> not quite thankfully but they don't do tobacco honestly um anyway no as i said like th that's the famous race where biagi runs rossi onto the grass um rossi comes back and overtakes him tells him he's in pole position as he overtakes him as, as a counter-attack I'm, I'm sure that's what that symbol <laughs> means um <laughs> and uh would stunt on him afterwards for it because apparently before going even going into that race they had bumped into each other at a restaurant at suzuka and apparently Priagi told him the 2001 version of What's your mouth out before you say my name? Apparently, was the line that allegedly Biagi said to Rossi before that race. Um, you know, uh, so I thought that was quite funny. Rossi runs wide. Did he get a nerve there from Max Biagi? 150 miles an hour into the dirt, onto the grass. Rossi will not like that one little bit. Honda chasing that 500 Grand Prix victory. And could it be Valentino Rossi? He has got past Biagi. He goes into the right hander. Oh! He gives Biaggi a friendly wave, I don't think. I think that was one finger, and I think it signified he didn't like that manoeuvre earlier in the race. The one that most people recognise is the one that was two races later at Catalonia in the infamous Park Ferme fight. Um, turns out, it actually wasn't the exact fight that people think it is. And turns out, it wasn't actually a Biaggi rossi fight in the sense of there was about 50 people in the in the in the tv area for they're going out to the podium which just doesn't happen in today's grand prix standards there was a whole hive of people obviously mm -hmm. tight space cramped a lot of people 
Um, somebody jostles into Max Biaggi, complete accident. Biaggi, as a result of getting knocked, nudges himself into Valentino Rossi's personal manager. Um, personal manager takes it personally. Um, in in every Michael Jordan sense, um, starts pointing a finger at Max and says some words that apparently were unbroadcastable. Um, <laughs> Max took that personally, shoved the personal manager, and then an all-out brawling shoes. <laughs> Where apparently, in the middle of the scrum, Rossi has seen the altercation and then starts apparently throwing a couple of punches at Max while he's in the scrum. But it turns out a overcrowded Park Ferme paddock area is what indirectly led to one of the most famous fights in bike racing history. One so famous that when Max is asked about the cut below his eye, he said, quote, must have been a mosquito bite. Um, <laughs> Max was very dignified about the whole thing. Rossi completely ignored the whole thing that ever happened. Apparently, FIM wrote quite a few letters saying, no, guys, don't ever do that again, basically. Um, wasn't, wasn't great, but... Yeah. It's, it's it's almost a shame in a sense because Biaggi had a fantastic career as a bike grade as a bike racer in his own right. Four-time world champion would go on to win a world superbike title in his forties, believe it or not, as well. In the towards the end of his career, but he's one of those guys that I don't think would ever get the true credit he deserves because he had to go up against Valentino at his prime. Um, I mean. Cam, you can back me up on this one. He was probably the biggest victim of that five-year run of dominance that Rossi had. Couple of them. I think we'll get to. I think, in my opinion, the biggest one next after. And I still, mm. I I wish, I so wish that we could have seen Mick versus Valentino because mm. Mick Dewan's dominance was so bad that it was genuinely killing the top class. It was. Those two on the same bike in the same team would have been box office, and it's yeah. a shame I think we didn't get to see that as the two strokes waned. And you um, have to feel like after Dewan was forced to retire, mm-hmm. like Matt Biaggi is set to be the next great premier class champion. I don't like, know it's, about it's, all that. Because I think that also didn't help that at this point Honda has an overwhelming bike advantage. It's not like it's not like the modern times. The NSR 500 was everything everyone ever says it was. It was dominant for a decade and a half with Mm. you know other championships sprinkled in uh, in between. As a side note before we move on from 2001 Another fun little uh, note, because I'm the endurance racing guy on this podcast, and we'll always bring it up at any opportunity. <laughs> Despite very minimal experience on road-going machinery, they paired the man up with Colin Edwards, stuck him on a RC-51, and he casually goes and runs the field over at the Suzuka 8 Hours for 2001. Yeah. Mainly, in his own words, so that he would never have to be... He, he, Honda would never ask him to do it again. Because he hated it. Yeah. Remember that note. It becomes important later. Um, but yes, definitely. It was worth a mention as well. Because that was the dream team for Yamaha and MotoGP for quite a few years. Him and Colin Edwards, who'd come off 
one of the great World Superbike feuds of all time with one Troy Bayliss. If you've never seen that 2001 World Superbike season, go out of your way to watch it. It's fantastic uh, content. Some of the best races ever see on two wheels between like Bayliss and Edwards beat the shit out of each other for an entire calendar year, and Edwards came out on top, um, and then jumped then jumped ship, and World Superbikes was never quite the same after that. Mm. Whoops, um, but. Yes, you know, Biaggi never really got one over on Valley in the end, which was kind of a shame as his, obviously as he got into his mid-30s. And even when, you know, went into decline a little bit, he never really got one over on Valley like that. But well, he's not the only one <laughs> because we, we go on. 2002, the sport goes for a major rebrand. It ditches the 500cc two strokes. We move to 1000cc four strokes. And we now have the premier class now known as MotoGP as we know it today. Uh, the 20th anniversary of that rebrand will be this upcoming season in 2022. Um, and also a big prolific move. Rossi trades in yellow for, or oh, as Cam will argue with Kevin on Twitter on many occasions, is it, is it black or is it dark blue? It's dark um, blue and Kevin Walsh can eat me on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like it's it's black if you've only ever seen it on television. Exactly. Right. The two thousand two bike especially was kind of a navy blue. But but you know you're thinking Honda put all this into the five hundred. They put all these resources into the five hundreds, and they've been dominant for so long. Well, maybe with the switch to the four strokes and these all new bikes, maybe maybe they'll get it wrong and. uh no, 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 that's not what happened, because, um, <laughs> well, let's run down the list of people developing the four-stroke Honda. Um, Valentino Rossi. nine wins to let's start see. the year. Valentino Rossi as head development rider. Mick Doohan. Freddie Spencer. Oh, youngest world champion ever to that point. And Jeremy Burgess overseeing all of it. One of the best crew chiefs of all time. Yeah. Oh, Goodbye, God. It, everyone it's, else. It's the Golden State Warriors death lineup of bike development. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's Tom Brady and Randy Moss. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's untouchable. Um, and yes, uh, surprise, surprise, Valentino Rossi absolutely destroys the field in 02 and 03. Um, 2003, in fact, he finished on the podium at every single race that season. <laughs> it's one of the greatest seasons in Grand Prix motorcycle racing history. I think it's second on the all-time list for points per round. Um, yeah. It is an absolute seal clubbing. I was going to say, that there's nothing for us to really say other than it was such a beatdown. Such a complete sh- destruction of the class manufacturers walked away because of this yeah they thought there was no point in competing against this we're out and this was the start of moto gp's decline towards the back end of the credit crunch but more on that later but yeah it but that plays into a very important plot point here it does a massive flashpoint actually honda has the best bike no one's gonna argue that no and Honda themselves are real high on their own supply over this glorious bike that they've made. Mm-hmm. They want to tell everyone how it was all the engineers 
and all the people back at the factory and in Japan doing all the work that made all the success possible. Yep. And a certain man wearing yellow didn't take too kindly to that. Yeah. A lot of people out here by the end of 2003 were saying, well, Rossi's not that great. It's the Honda that's doing all the work. And to be fair, looking at the championship at the time, the highest ranking Yamaha was Carlos Checker in seventh. Um, yeah, Honda had like, like a one, two, three, four, five sweep of the championship. It was yeah. nuts. Loris was the only man not on a Honda in the top five. Yeah. And yeah, no one else could ride the Duke. And it was the outlier in a Honda dominated championship. Rossi didn't like his time at Honda towards the end of his run. He apparently, according to legendary broadcaster Nick Harris, he said that uh, uh, he felt like a prisoner in that Honda team. He didn't like how he couldn't go off and do other things. Like, I think he wanted to race in the World Rally Championship at one point, and Honda wouldn't let him. He, he felt like he was a prisoner in his own setup. And he also was getting a bit sick and tired of the people saying, that, oh, yeah, it, it's just the bike. We never hear that in any other form of motorsport ever. No one ever brings up the best car or, or best machinery in any way, shape, or form. So, never, man. A tale is all this time, even though no one assumes that the company who has the resources to build the best car or bike might just hire the best rider or driver. It's almost like the things are intertwined. Anywho, Rossi's like, you know what? Sod the lot of you. I'm going to go prove you wrong. I'm going to go to Yamaha in 2004. And everybody Yamaha. was like, huh? <laughs> Yamaha didn't win a race in 2003. Yamaha finished right. a distant third in the in the Manufacturers' Championship. Remember, folks, you are spoiled by the parody of modern MotoGP today. Oh, yeah. yeah. And not only did Valentino Rossi walk away from Honda, he brought the whole crew with him. Everybody. Yep. <laughs> that Michael Schumacher effect. Brought, yeah. Yeah, brought, brought Burgess over, brought the whole development team over. We're going to win with this Yamaha. That's going to be our project. And oh, yeah. Yamaha was like, please come over. <laughs> yeah, uh, Yamaha get handed him the entire bag, the garbage yeah. pail and the Brinks truck. Yep. And gave him a blank, basically a blank check and a blank sheet of paper to do whatever they wanted with the terrible, no good, and very bad Yamaha M1. Yeah, and they did. Big, they yeah, threw the entire big. bike in the trash. The whole thing. <laughs> it's all gone. Big, we're starting from scratch. Big, hey, are you going to Yamaha by yourself? No, I'm going to Yamaha with my boy. Here they are. Yeah. I'll never forget. Yeah, it's like watching an episode of Family Feud. It's just like here's all the lineup in the background. It's like this is my team right here. It's 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 ridiculous. And guess what happened? Very first race at Yamaha, Fakisa, 2004. Remember, we used to race in South Africa. Those were the good times. Uh, I guess I guess who had flipped over and joined Honda in the interim? A soul after that for a soul. The Roman Emperor, Max Biaggi, joins Honda, yeah. thinking, oh, hello, best manufacturer in the field, probably second best rider in the world. He's on the Honda. Rossi's first ever race on the Yamaha, the legendary Golosis. Again, you got another tobacco sponsorships. The, the dark blue, the dark blue 46 Golosis oh, Yamaha. Mike. 
Yeah, and uh, no, no questions of no whether that bike is uh, black or dark blue. <laughs> no, it's definitely navy blue. There's no arguments there. Rossi wins on debut for Yamaha and breaks the lap record in the process. Yaji leads the way, but Rossi is very, very close indeed. They come onto the back straight. Is Rossi close enough to try and outbreak him from sixth gear down into fourth, down into third? No, he's not. Piaggi just holds firm. Rossi very, very close indeed. Piaggi runs it wide an inch. Rossi will be through, but there's no way through at the moment for the Yamaha rider. It tightens up. Rossi goes through. There was an inch, and Rossi's done it, and there's nothing Piaggi can do about it. They break for the left-hander. The 25-year-old Italian is going to write another chapter into the MotoGP history books. Can you believe it? Rossi is going to win the Africa's Grand Prix here at Melbourne, riding a Yamaha. Piaggi closes. He's not close enough. One bend to go for the world champion. Rossi is going to do it. The chequered flag beckons the doctor. The chequered flag is shown. Valentino Rossi wins the Africa's Grand Prix from Yamaha and from Max Piaggi. Something Max that has Piaggi. never been done and has not been done since. Yeah. Winning on back-to-back -back different manufacturers. Yeah, back-to-back. -back. People have won for two different manufacturers. No one's ever won the consecutive races back-to-back -back with two different manufacturers. It was one of Rossi's greatest wins. It was a fantastic dogfight between him and Biaggi, by the way. Mm -hmm. One you should definitely go out and watch if you have not seen it before. Um, and just Rossi in tears after, after that race. He's, he parks the bike up and he sits on the grass next to the wall in tears. He couldn't believe what he'd just done, essentially. It is an incredibly powerful scene because I don't think even he believed that, you know, that the Yamaha could be this good that quickly. And... Uh, it was. It was the, the the dream had become a reality. Um, Rossi would go on to win another two world championships with Yamaha, number six and seven. But again, another key rival came into prominence at this time, and it wasn't Max Biaggi who joined Honda. It was another Honda, one of another definitely blue livery, uh, the Telefonica movie star Honda of number fifteen, the Spaniard Sete Gibernau. Um, now, poor boy, this is a uh, this is a very emotional, very one-sided rivalry. But it's it, it was by this point that Jim and now had pretty much become the number two rider in the world. At this point, yeah. he and Rossi had a good few back and forths. Even Jim and I even won a couple of them. He was good enough on his a best few of them. Yeah, I mean, the yeah. shame for me with, with Jibber now is that he spent a couple years at Repsol Honda on the V-twin version of the mm. NSR 500, the, let's call it spade a spade, the bitch version. Didn't yes. do a whole lot with it. Got dropped down to one of the satellite teams. Did okay. Brought in results and got his own factory bike and support back by way of... Dejiro uh, yeah. Kedo's fatal crash at the 2003 yeah. Japanese Grand Prix. Yeah, we'll, some, yeah, we'll we'll touch on it. Dejiro Kato versus Rossi is one as another one of the great rivalries that never was. And mm. for Sete Jibber now to go be. in the very next race in South Africa after that happens, go on to win two of the next three on his bike. On his bike, that's that's really huge, and he goes on to finish second of the championship in 03. and then 
in 2004, he almost becomes, despite it not being uh, the in, bathed in the Repsol colors, kind of the de facto lead factory Honda. Yeah, he was. Alex Ferris purposes isn't quite. I, Alex I, is on decline. Nicky Hayden's not quite there yet. What's up? I do have to point out something in the notes that reading up about this, I find really, really hard to believe. First point in the notes about Sede Gibernau. Him and Rossi are former best friends. I I find that really hard to believe. You'd be surprised. <laughs> they were actually they were great friends. They were. They used to go on holiday together. As their families went on holidays together, they were genuinely close friends. I know they sound like chalk and cheese, but they were very close until one fateful day. It was Qatar 2004. Uh, back when he used to, used to do that race, when it wasn't at night. I know, strange, right? Um, point, 2004. Now, here's the thing. Valentino Rossi's team blatantly cheats. They take a scooter. It's, it is not up for debate. They hardcore cheated. They blatantly cheated. They took, they took one of the garage scooters. They find his grid slot on the grid after Saturday qualifying. They pick out the spot where he's going to be starting the race. And they do some burnouts on a scooter on that side of the grid to lay down some rubber. A better start for the race on Sunday. Powerful um, was that scooter that they could do burnouts with it. Right, right. Just lay down some rubber. Now, don't get me wrong. This is blatantly cheating. Let me just point this out right here and now. He was caught in the act. Somebody lodged a formal protest. Yeah. Like, somebody lodged a formal protest. I still, to this day, I don't think it's ever been revealed who lodged the protest. But Rossi's camp was adamant it was Sete Gibernau. Because Gibernau, it would make sense. He's the number one title rival in the field. He's the number two rider in the world at the moment. They think, well, it's got Gibernau, hasn't he? He's coming to bring me down, you know? Despite the fact that Rossi's team was blatantly cheated here. Um, MotoGP looked at the security camera footage, did catch him in the act. Rossi was sent to the back of the grid. He crashed in the race trying to make up the ground. That Sete Gibernau will never win another race again. It's a disputed quote. There's been many versions of this quote saying, oh, it was just for this season. Some people have even said he never said it at all. It's one of those ones that goes down in the books as a bit of folklore. However, where there's smoke. Exactly. Um, Like, Rossi would win the following race and he would celebrate his win with a broom to swim (laughs) the track. And despite the fact that Rossi's team had blatantly cheated. I hear catching strays. <laughs> oh it's my god. It's, it's, it's not fair. Like, Jimenao has been charged guilty of a committed or not. And even if he was, Rossi cheated. And yet Jimenao was still the bad guy afterwards. It's not a fair fight. <laughs> How you know you're beloved by the public. You're out here cheating. But they got your ass, this is 2004, they got your ass in 1080p on those brand new Sony flat screens. And the other guy is the bad guy because of it. Like, this, like, just the, 
whole Rossi at Yamaha the first time saga. Just stories like this shows you how ruthlessly competitive he is. Anyone who even appears to stand in his way needs to move over or be moved. Right. On that note. That is a great segue. First race of the 2005 season in Jerez, Spain. It's Rossi versus Gibbernau once again. Dre, I believe you, you've you told the story a, a couple times about you being the one Gibbernau supporter in a house of Rossi fans when this moment goes down. My, I grew up in a house where my dad and my brother were huge Valentino Rossi fans. I don't hold it against him now because the man was a transcendent god by two fans. Four. And my dad was a huge glory hunter. Um, half of my addiction of sports comes through him. So I hold him completely responsible. Um, so, yeah, I grew up as a Gibbonau fan, mostly because I thought the Honda was gorgeous and I loved the Gibbonau Telefonica movie star livery Honda. So I, I just naturally. The, the, most pure, the most pure form of fandom in all of motorsport is not liking the rider or driver behind the wheel, but liking them because their vehicle is pretty. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's why my first bike in love was Kenny Roberts Jr. on the Suzuki. Because I, I had a model in it when I was like seven years old and it was on my windowsill in my old house. I lost it. I'm always gutted I never got that back. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, Kenny Roberts Jr. was my first love. So all you Kenny Roberts Jr. fans out there in America, I'm one of your boys, I promise. Um, I know this sounds like sacrilege right now. Please forgive me. Point is, is that I was in a house, I was in a house of Rossi fans and... Her F2005, even if you ignore this final corner incident, is still one of the best races ever. It, and it, it's absolutely one you should watch in its entirety. Nicky Hayden was a huge part in this race until he sadly crashed towards the end. It's the final lap of the race. We know how this goes. It's going to be Rossi versus Gibbonau at it again. Um, they're going down towards the final corner. It's a long sweeping right going into a very slow hairpin, about 40 miles an hour, one of the slowest corners on the entire calendar. And the one thing that sticks out in my head to this day is Toby Moody, who again, the legendary MotoGP commentator in Eurosport, Toby Moody and Julian Ryder um, on commentary. And Moody sees this coming about 100 meters before the braking zone. He's like, they're going to hit. You can hear him say clearly on the call, they're going to hit. And they hit. One more attempt, surely, at the tight left hander that brings them back into the start and finish straight. Cedric Gibbonolis, look at the crowd. 127,000 Spaniards go absolutely crazy. Into the right hander. Ross has got the inside. Ross is back in front. He runs in wide. Now, who has the best position for the right hander? It's Gibbonolis. Ross is surely going to try and get up the inside of Gibbonolis. Gibbonolis holds the pole position. They break for the left hander. Rossi up the inside. Oh, they touch. Well, Rossi Gibbonolis running wide. Rossi's bunted him off the track. Rossi's going to take victory in the Spanish Grand Prix. Gibbonau's in the gravel. Can he get back on the track in time to take second? Rossi block passes the ever-loving shit out of Gibbonau on the final corner. No, no, no. No. That's not a block pass. That that was a dive. That is a a punt pass. It's a punt pass. That's a block pass if you're riding Supercross on a MotoGP You're going to run him up. I was, I was trying to be nice. It, it's a punt. Don't. It's a punt. He wasn't trying to be nice. We all know what this move was. It changed this entire sport forever. And the reason why, why is I say that, this Dre? is because I think it was the race that 
forever changed how the stewards look at these sorts of incidents. I'll give you a few examples, right? Jim and fan here again, so this is a bit like a therapy session, so bear with me for just a second here. Um, <laughs> I'll give you an example. Mategi 2003, Makoto uh, Tamada is racing against Jibanao. I think it was for third on the day at Japan. Tamada puts Jibanao in the gravel on the final lap down the hill with three corners to go. What happened as a result of that race? Makoto Tamada was disqualified. Yeah. He was qualified from the results. Like, yeah, they were the like, past. nope. You in, didn't in exist. the past. That kind of move meant that you were either getting a hefty penalty for the next race, or you were straight up kicked out of the results of the race where you committed said uh, crime against yeah. your fellow competitor. Worse, yeah. Cameron. Worse. They they were giving people race bans for that back yeah. then. John Hopkins <laughs> took out two. Yeah, yeah, they would set like, people out like just straight up. This is not called for. This is unsafe. Yeah, I remember like John Hopkins took out two bikes when they raced in Shanghai, and they gave Hopkins a one race ban for it. They were banning people for round. Like they were like, you do not do this. This is a straight up no. Pass your dude cleanly, or else we will throw the book at you. Yeah, Rossi never faced any punishment for her F two thousand and five. It was where and, is the line? There is no line. Do yeah, as thou and, wilt. And as when Valentino Rossi was interviewed about the incident at the end of the race, afterwards, he said one of his probably one of his most famous quotes, if not he his most famous quote, this is the races. And that's one that has stuck with MotoGP through the test of time, because from that point onwards, it essentially made the over-the-line, aggressive, contact-inducing block pass legal in MotoGP. Because we do not look at incidents like that in the same way in MotoGP anymore. Um, Remember that. It becomes very important later. Yeah, like, this is the races is like, if MotoGP could, they'd probably trademark that quote. Like, it's it's yeah, one of those... Yeah, story on everything. It, yeah, because... I say that because that's how the America's Cup operates. Uh, like, quick story, first America's Cup race, the Yacht America wins the cup, and what is now known as a very hypocritical quote, but it's become literally the motto for the competition. When when asked who fin- when when Queen Victoria, who was attending the race, asked who finished second, someone replied, Your Majesty, there is no second. And pretty much that set the ruthlessness of that competition going forward for two centuries. Rossi saying this is the races is on that same level of, yeah, it's either you you race to win or you don't race at all. Right, yeah. and it, it was one that changed this sport forever. And you know what's funny? Um, a little side story here real quick. Um, when we had the first lockdown in the UK uh, back in March of 2020, uh, BT Sport, knowing they didn't have a MotoGP sport to cover due to the, the pandemic, and obviously we, we had no global sport for a couple of months there, they did a four-episode marathon series called MotoGP The Greatest Race. Um, it was a 16-race bracket where they tried to figure out via public vote what was the greatest MotoGP race of all time. Her F2005 won its qualifying heat in a, in a block of four, um, and I think Philip Arden 2017 was in there. It was a very tightly contested heat. Um, the other great Philip Island race, by the way. Um, and during that 
three-hour-long marathon, they interview Sete Gibernel. And it's one of those things where I was glued to my TV screen as this was going on. I was like, oh, say on here. Holy shit, what's he going to say here? You could tell this hurt him. This hurt him bad. He looked like a man who still hurting. I know they'd had public makeup interviews and press conferences since then. It still hurts him. This is one of those races. This is one of those historic flashpoints where the sport is never the same after it. Yeah, and usually in clashes like that, in defeats like that, <laughs> like we've seen them in various other sports where there's one matchup that sets the trend for that sport for the next decade further and beyond. And if you're on the losing side of things, things don't turn out well for you. No, you not. could be the great, you could be the greatest show on turf of Rams and end up having the move cities. You could be like, like uh. <laughs> losing side of matchups like that. Your career is never the same again, and it's usually for worse. And yeah, yeah that's what absolutely happened. right. now never won another race again after that. Was I think he was just sad that he'd lost a friend as a result. I think he, it, let's not forget, Qatar 2004 was probably not anything to do with him, and yet he was made out to be the villain for it. And then RF 2005, he was screwed by an over-aggressive move by Valentino and no one cared because everybody loved Valentino and he it was, was great always going to come off. It was great TV. It was, an, it was a, a landmark flashpoint in the sports history. Someone had to lose and it was Gibbonow and Gibbonow lost basically every. It's like Ivan Drago in Rocky Four. It's just like he just loses everything after that. Like Gibbonow was never the he same went, guy again and he went accidentally... From being, hmm. He went from being the tip of the Honda Spear to out of the sport within two years. Yeah, no. two, three years. Yeah, because Marco Melandri became top Honda, and Melandri was never really in Rossi's league. One of those flashpoints. If, if, I don't know if it's still out there on the internet, um, on some totally legal motorsport video viewing sites, but if, you, if, if it's available and it's out there and you can find it, I highly recommend finding the MotoGP Greatest Race Series that BT Sport did. All of it is well worth watching. The Gibbonow interview rings particularly cold. Like I said, Biaggi talks about the rivalry. Biaggi like laughs and jokes about it now. Looking back on it, he sees the funny side of it all. Gibbonow hurts. He hurts mm-hmm. as a result of this incident and how it all played out. It's actually quite sad actually seeing him like clearly still not really over that incident. Moving on a little bit, 2006 now. I say it when I wrote the kick, I'll say it here. If I had time, 2006 would get its own half-hour segment because it's a ridiculous season. Rossi has the mother of bad luck to start the year. Um, All of a sudden comes through as the number one contender on the Repsol Honda. There's a legendary race at Assen where Colin Edwards was 500 feet away from his first ever top flight win and then crashes at the final corner, um, causing a uh, big civil war between American fans. Like, who do we root for here? Um, Edwards yeah. would never win a MotoGP yeah, I mean, race, and that was the closest he ever got. Um, poor guy. Um, yeah, I mean, Nicky was N- Nicky was really the last product of the American, uh, the last successful product of the American uh, superbike world. And it took a couple of years. <laughs> But on the big bikes, in the Repsol Honda team, 
by mid 2005, he had come good. In 2006, he just he was just relentless. He yeah. just kept racking up points. Yeah, and uh, he was racking up points. Rossi was reeling him in, but he was running out of rounds again. Esteril 2006. There is a video deeply lodged in, in our YouTube channel where I talk about said race. It is one of the best races of all time. Um, some guy called Tony Elias came in and spoiled the party after both Repsol Hondas may or may not have taken each other out. Taken uh, each other out? I don't want to hear a word about <laughs> any of that. Brackets. Danny Pedrosa may have been responsible. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, to start off the year, Rossi had, he had tire issues. He was yeah. taken out, I believe, in the opening race by... Elias. I want to say Elias. He just he, he ruined his whole 2006, really. He really did, because he, he took him out in the first <laughs> round, and then he beat him by two thousandths of a second in Estoril, still the closest finish in MotoGP history, um, to beat Rossi over the line in a championship where it's five points between first and second, and Rossi would go on to lose the championship by five points. Incredible. Honda yeah. sent Tony. He, he must be. He, he never has to work again in his life. No, How big no, is the bag? No. Like when this Estoril's big. Come down to the final race. He crashed during the final race. Was able to continue, but he was too far down the order. Um, Nicky Hayden breaks the streak in one of the most emotional, um, heart pulling moments in this history where. Him and his dad all are running across the track. Hayden in floods of tears. Life fireworks. Not being able to believe the magnitude of what he's just done. Um, and just, he toppled the greatest rider. By this point, he started making discussions that Rossi was the greatest ever. Um, even by 06. And yeah. Hayden beat him. Fair and square. Beat him straight up. And, and uh, yeah. I mean. It was a, a magical moment. As someone who a very, very long time ago got to meet Nikki. And uh, mm. we know he's no longer here. As a little kid watching that TV at I don't even know what time. I stayed up way fucking past my bedtime to watch that. Because uh, mm. it was in Valencia on the other side of the world. And I was jumping up and down screaming. I think yeah. I was nine years old. Because... That was my favorite, again, very selfishly, that was my favorite looking bike, and he was the American, mm. and... Of course. I got I got to shake that guy's hand uh, three or four years prior. I was out of my fucking mind. Yeah, I've, I've, from a personal standpoint, I've been very fortunate to have interviewed a lot of people, a lot of multiple world champions in my time hosting podcasts and radio shows. I've, I always tell people, Nicky Hayden's my all-time favorite still remember that we woke him up an hour early when it was me and Lewis on Bike Live and he just did the interview from his bed at 6 o'clock in the morning because that's just the sort of guy he was. Um, the, one of the nicest dudes you'll ever, hear, you'll ever hear about and see. No one had ever said a bad word about Nicky, ever. Not in a million years. And uh, I deeply miss him. Uh, we all do. Bike racing misses Nicky Hayden. We, like, we, we know, never had it quite that good. It sucks that hmm. we could never get like Nicky Hayden for sit-down interviews as Rossi was walking away from the sport. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. It been, he, he would have been a fantastic contributor towards that. We miss you, Nicky. 2007 and... 
another big regulation change for MotoGP. Um, we change regulations again. Out with the 1,000cc four strokes we now know. We go into 800cc prototype machinery, something yeah, that Honda so was we, pushing on. We took big about four. a cup of water out of these engines. Yeah. Yep, we, uh, well, taking about uh, 190cc away is going to take away some of the lap time on these. Oh, God, they're faster. Yeah, yeah we're going to. We're going to roll up with these new prototype regulations. They're going to be faster, a bit more expensive, but don't worry. The sports growth will come. Oh, no. No, these were meant to be slower, and then the manufacturers laughed in the background. <laughs> we're going to pour money into this. This global economy can sustain this bad money. Yeah, about that. Uh, about, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and Honda who pushed nonstop for these because ooh, smaller, lighter, more, you know, more agile. Oh God, the Honda sucks ass. Enter yeah. one, Casey Stoner. Casey uh, Stoner from the top yeah. rope. Yeah, friendly Stoner. to Australia. Yeah, for, from Australia, the second coming of McDoin to a degree. Stacey Stoner had ridden a satellite Honda in his debut the previous year in 2006. Had a few good results here and there. So he got to headline Ducati's factory team in 20, in 2007. And oh my god, the Ducati's got a rocket on the back of it. Um, um, it's, it's still one of my favorite MotoGP calls. Again, Toby Moody, when he sees the raw power of the Ducati in a straight line, when he's blowing past Valentino Rossi on the home straight in Qatar, and you just go, oh my god, he's got eight miles an hour on the field. Um, yeah. You know, f the more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? I know, I know, right? It's, it's, yeah, Casey Stoner completely bamboozled the field. He was doing enough of his massive aggressive riding style to compensate for Ducati's lack of maneuverability, and had just an incredible amount of power on that prototype 800cc that bike, bike on those bridgestone tires and that rider coming into his own oh brother and there Cancel are some flashpoints oh let's then. get to them 2007 i mean one of the one of the few races just that didn't win that year was at the giving the saker um and the first 15 laps of that race are double action ever seen in moto gp it is in motorsports, period. Yeah. Stoner going around the outside at turn one, over the hill, uh, about 170 miles an hour. Like, Cajonia's the size of watermelons. I just, I don't, like, and Rossi, his pass at the corkscrew, a legendary move in MotoGP history. Um, one of the things that'll be posters on kids' walls for years to come, that pass at the corkscrew. Up there with Alex Zanardi's pass at the corkscrew. I was saying, the other, the other pass at the corkscrew. Minus two wheels and double the aggression. Yeah! Like, it was a, a, it was a race of uh, basically whose nuts are bigger and uh, Stoner lost that fight. He, uh, he outbraked himself going into the final corner of about 10 laps to go. <laughs> Rossi goes through and pushes Stoner wide. Casey won't like that one bit. That Tries to take the pace, doesn't he? Has a bit more drive coming out of that corner, but Rossi stood strong. Stoner in second position once more. Round the outside! Going up the Rahal straight. Unbelievable stuff from Casey Stoner. And Rossi comes straight back at the corkscrew. We haven't seen action like oh. this as Rossi runs off track and pushes Stoner wide. 
What amazing stuff here. Valentino Rossi and Casey Stoner duking out there, doing so in the championship. And Stoner almost tries to go around the outside at turn 10. This is unbelievable stuff. Stoner leads for Valentino Rossi. Rossi Same move again. going to make it one more time up turn five and goes through. But will Stoner have the drive coming out of it? Rossi just seems to have the edge there, doesn't he? Close this time, trying to get the drive out enough to take him past Valentino Rossi and be able to get in front of him. Going into turn yeah, through, he's through, through one more time. So Casey Stoner does make a move on the front straight, as we said. Rossi's going to try and get straight back underneath him. And Stoner's going to keep the bike stuck in there, isn't he? But Rossi sticks it right up underneath him straight away. Here we go. Here's Casey back straight back underneath him. He's strong in this section. Great stuff in turn three. Stoner goes through, but Rossi's hanging oh, the bike down the outside. Unbelievable. Up the last corner oh. of the circuit. Oh, oh Stoner, Stoner I, runs it he's wide. Off. And he's going to run it wide and onto the gravel. That could be the end of the race. He's, he's gone down. down. Casey Stoner has gone down well. Stoner in second position has gone down. Still running. Valentino Rossi will take victory in the United States Grand Prix. A big old wheelie as he crosses the line. A brilliant, brilliant performance from the past master, Valentino Rossi. You can see how much he loves that one. Valentino was riding great pace at the front, you know, riding very well, very defensive and, uh, you know, I just felt that some of the passing manoeuvres were maybe a little bit too much and past the point of fair or aggressive. Um, you know, I've been riding for a lot of years and uh, even though I'm only 22, I've been now racing for 18 years. I've had uh, a lot of overtaking manoeuvres, I've done a lot of overtaking manoeuvres and, uh, you know, it was just some of the, the most uh, aggressive I've had in, in a long, long time. Um, dropped his motorcycle. He was so far ahead of third, he was able to pick it back up and continue and still finish in second. Because they were like a second a lap faster than anyone else in the field while fighting each other. Those two are in a completely different stratosphere for the rest of the field. But it's... Because Stoner should have been, really, the next big Rossi rival. It just mm. didn't work out that way. Stoner won the 2007 world title. He won 10 races. It was one of the most dominant seasons ever seen. Um, we all thought, well, this is the Stoner era now. You know, youngest ever world champ. 21 years of age. We thought, well, this is it now. You know, the, funny how that works. And Stoner never had it that good again until 2011, where he would well, switch to Honda. Yeah, and. Uh... Like I said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Ducati in 2007 had that engine advantage. They had yeah. the Bridgestones and they had Casey Stoner. What they didn't have was a particularly great chassis. Mm. It was stable, but wasn't the most maneuverable thing in the world. Wasn't the easiest thing in the world to ride. Right. And Casey Stoner let them... He was adamant that they needed to fix the problems with the bike. Because they already had the right engine... And they already had the tires more or less under control. So Ducati's solution was to add more horsepower. I'm as a flat oh, circle, folks. <laughs> yeah. Stoner never had it that good at Ducati again. 
like he went from ten wins to six to four to I think two in his final season at Ducati. At the same time, he, there is no one else on a Ducati who can like Nicky Hayden, world champion, can't hold a candle to him on the same bike. No, no, no one's even close. And and Stoner was going for his own personal health problems as well. Like mm-hmm. Ducati forty was lactose intolerance at one point. No, it turns out the man had chronic fatigue. Um, <laughs> You yeah. know, it was misdiagnosed lactose intolerance, apparently, according to Jacatic. How much milk was he drinking for to, for them to assume chronic fatigue was lactose intolerance? No, because Ducati you know, only right. speaks in horsepower. Yeah. But you, you drink too much milk. Clearly, that's the problem. He actually missed time during, I think, in the middle of 08 for that very reason. And, uh, yeah, stone up, declined. He was fighting through health. And turns out he wasn't actually all that happy with being a black rider at all. Um, he didn't like the direction the sport was going. And by 2012, he, didn't like he the circus. Yeah, he didn't like the circus. He, he, he called it a day. But there was one funny thing. We fast forward a little bit to 2011 where Rossi, riding for a different manufacturer, more about that in a minute, may or may not have taken Casey Stoner out of the race at her F. Um, and then when Rossi walks into the booth to apologize, a certain Casey Stoner looks at him dead in the eye and says, quote, looks like your ambition outweighed your talent, huh? Oh, one of the greatest burns, in my opinion, in motorsport history. We'll get to that season in a little bit. Mm. But we're going to rewind it. Um, let's not destroy the VHS tape. Rewind it to 2008. Yeah. Yamaha's back, and Valentino Rossi is back. The Fiat Yamaha era. Ooh. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, Rossi takes Complete two more world eight. titles in 08 and 09. No one's even touching him. However, there is an interesting new teammate alongside uh, Valentino Rossi in the midst of Colin Edwards leaving the team and going to Tech 3. Um, some really motivated Spanish kid called Jorge Lorenzo. Apparently he's a big deal. He just won a couple of 250 titles. How good could he possibly George? be? George? Who's <laughs> 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 right? this George you speak of? Um, yeah, Jorge started Lorenzo. off, you know, came in with all the hype in the world, mm. but didn't quite get on top of the big, fast, top-class bikes right away. Right, right. Definitely some, uh, like, I think I read a story about how him and Rossi were going with different different tire manufacturers to start the season. Yes. Rossi was on Bridgestones and Lorenzo was on Michelins. Precisely. That's exactly what happened. It was strange because by 2008, Rossi was adamant that the reason why Stoner was winning was because he was on Bridgestone tires. So it's his side of the garage. We want Bridgestones. And then the Yamaha was like, "Okay, we'll give you, we'll give you Bridgestones." And yeah, and then, you, yeah, that doesn't happen in motorsport. No, you'll break tire contracts with your suppliers. <laughs> exactly. Meanwhile, when when Jorge Lorenzo came up from the 250 class into MotoGP in 2008, he didn't want to depart from his beloved Michelin's that had won him three world championships in the smaller categories. So Lorenzo stuck with Michelin's while Rossi was on Bridgestones, and that's what led to the famous divider being between their garages, because obviously you couldn't have two different tire technicians in the same garage because one could potentially steal data off the other. 
Um, Imagine, if you will, for a moment, if in the middle of 2003, Michael up and says, you know what? Fuck Bridgestone. Ferrari, Ross, give me Michelins. Right. Like, uh, imagine just being the second tire company in this deal, the tire company that comes in. Like, why would you say yes to this? (laughs) Because you get to supply Valentino Rossi, and that's a ticket to a world title. (laughs) Right. Uh Again, Rossi is God. You want to supply Rossi with your goods. So, you know, why wouldn't you say yes to that? Because Rossi was a God by 2008. You know, he was a super God by 2008. Yeah, so that's what led to a horrible divide between the Yamaha garages before they'd even really gotten started. Um, yeah, they, they, there was anything about Lorenzo compa- by comparison to, that, to other rivalries. There was never, ever really a massive flashpoint where these two just didn't like each other. It was a bit of bitterness, a bit of competitive needle, but it was never, I don't like this dude. I'm going to run him over with my motorcycle sort of thing. It never got to the point where it was Hmm. personal digs. No. That was, that was Pedrosa when it came to Lorenzo. He didn't like him. No. (laughs) They were battling for the the Spanish tabloid inches back then. But, uh, no. But it did give us one... Legendary race, Catalunya mm. 09. Oh, oh, the Holy oh, Grail. Yes, oh. put it in my veins. Oh, please. Um, is, 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 is this podcast PG thirteen? Because that po- that that race was filth. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the greatest races ever. It's one of the greatest individual fights ever. Like Lorenzo was coming back from that weekend contemplating retirement like he was dancing with concussions he was not happy in moto gp he had never gotten used to the top flight machines he was struggling he had a couple of enormous accidents you might remember the famous one the laguna seca where he was upside down on that high side um yeah you know the the big thing with lorenzo is that he was always smooth and rhythm and making Mm. all of the time in the corners and Despite the 800cc bikes being really cornering favored machines, um, when the development was being really defined by Valentino, he just never really got on with the top class bikes. Right. But that one day in Catalonia, Lorenzo was on fire. And he been Rossi everything he could. He was leading that race with three corners to go. He's through turn 10, the slower hairpin where you're thinking... Okay, you can't pass around the back section. So Lorenzo surely got this now, right? One corner to go, and oh my god, what's Valentino Rossi do? Oh my god, he's in front. Oh my god, Rossi's won the race. Here he comes down the straight. Jorge Lorenzo's going to go through, and he's gone through Valentino Rossi. Is he going to take the lead? He does. He made it stick this time round. Rossi trying to go around the outside, then on the inside of the right-hander. Rossi almost through. Lorenzo slams the door in his face. Oh, and Lorenzo's taking this on, and he's pushing Valentino Rossi to the absolute limit. Oh, look at him hanging off the bike through turn three. They head down to four. Here, Here comes, comes Rossi up the inside. Rossi retakes the lead. Valentino Rossi, but no, he's lost in the game. Lorenzo leads the way. Rossi running a little bit wide in turn four. Has he got the line? No, it's coming to turn five. He's going to try. Lorenzo very, very tight as they plunge downhill into this left-hander. Now then, Rossi's surely going to make a move again. The leader swapped twice on the three times on this very last lap. Half a lap to go here in Barcelona. Rossi very, very close indeed. Is he going to make the move? Certainly he's going to get onto that back straight. 
It's going to be a turn 10. He's going to make the big move as they come onto the back straight. This is where it's going to happen. But Lorenzo's carried a lot of speed out of turn nine. And there's no way through there. Valentino Rossi and Lorenzo pushing it so, so hard in there. And Lorenzo's going to hang on to it. He said to me before this weekend, if you go into these corners first, you know you're going to win the race. Can Rossi invent <laughs> something, though? Can he do it? Two more corners to go after this one. They're at the top of the hill. 12 and 13 to go. Lorenzo still leads the way. Rossi very, very close indeed. They plunge down the hill. We ride with Valentino Rossi. Lorenzo now into turn 13. And Rossi's invented something in the final corner. But Lorenzo gets close to the back. And Rossi has beaten him. What, what a, a motorcycle race. What a Grand three. Take a breath. Sorry Take a for breath. the excitement there, but how can you not enjoy that? It's, for me the greatest overtake in the history of motorsport. It I, is, I agree. It's one of. It's biblical. It, it's, I think I mentioned this when uh, Rossi was yeah. like first retiring when we were reminiscing about our, some of our favorite Rossi moments. And like That was the one for me. And I said, I know this is going to be a cliche, but that last quarter pass in Catalunya 2009 is... It's perfect. It, it, is his, his, it uh, shouldn't be moments. possible, and yet he yeah. made it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Lorenzo doesn't even defend it because there's no way he could have possibly seen that coming. Like, it's not, and it wasn't even really a dive bomb. Rossi just breaks, hits the apex, and he's absolutely inch perfect on exit. Doesn't take a track limit penalty, doesn't run wide, doesn't hit Lorenzo or put him wide. It's just perfect. It's Yeah, you you knew exactly where the limit was and found it and straddled that line to make that Rossi was kind of the exception rule for everything. It's like you think you think back to Hareth two thousand five and you think, here is a dominant world champion uh putting misery on their underdog championship rival. At the same time this is going on. Like Michael Schumacher is at his peak of dominance and people and people who are not Schumacher fans cannot stand this dude. Because mm, so if you were a fan time, of Top Flight Motorsport and you hated domination, man, the early 2000s must have been hell. Yeah. But Valentino Rossi seemed to me like he was the exception the rule that we get sick of chronic winners. We get chronic winner fatigue, but we somehow don't with Valentino Rossi. We didn't get fatigued with Valentino Rossi change the, change the entire scape of rider-to-rider decorum out on track. Yeah. If that doesn't tell you enough about how transcending an athlete he was, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it, it, it did not matter. Rossi was just that good and that special. And he found new ways to, to, to captivate people. He'd go on to win that race. He'd go on to win his ninth and final world championship. Not that we knew it at the time. Um, yeah. in 2009. He figured like 10's right around the corner. 10 could be as soon as 2010. Uh, Magento had other ideas. The the arguably the human leg is not supposed to bend that way. Yeah, Magello happens. He crashes in. I think it was qualifying. He breaks his leg. He misses four rounds. He doesn't even really come back the same guy the rest of that season. And Jorge Lorenzo, the guy that was struggling to figure it all out, figures it all out and puts together a three hundred and eighty points ridiculous season to win his first world championship in one of the greatest seasons statistically of all time. He yeah. didn't finish he didn't finish a single race lower than fourth. He was ridiculous that season. He figured Yeah, out. I mean even without Rossi's injury, I mean before Rossi got injured, Lorenzo was still 
beyond he was beyond the reach of everyone else. Yeah. And it it puts Lynn Jarvis, the team boss at Yamaha, in an incredibly difficult position. Lorenzo has just won you the the world title you'd always secretly kinda wanted from a younger rider. Lorenzo was still only twenty three at the time. So Lynn Jarvis thinks, I'm gonna roll with the hot hand. Hit Valley. You mind being Lorenzo's number two and taking a pay cut for us? No? Can we, can, we just, uh, can we just appreciate the gravity of the gap between um, championship winner and runner-up here? First place, Jorge Lorenzo, 383 points. Second place, Danny Pedrosa, who had a pretty decent season, 245. And he missed races, too. Yeah. 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 It was a beating, and that was enough for Lynn Jarvis to say, we're going all in on Jorge Lorenzo. <coughs> and and that, so he came good. Oh, man, he came pretty fucking good. Yeah. And Rossi was like, I'm not going to play second fiddle. Off I go. So, picture the scene. Valentino Rossi has won nine world championships. He, he's looking for number 10 but he's just been effectively shown the door at Yamaha or thinking that they're going to go all in on Jorge Lorenzo what would be the last major staple left for Rossi's career the, the, the last feather in the cap how about a home Italian championship with Ducati mm. how about I did it I'm, I turned a piece of garbage into a winner at Yamaha It'll be easy to do the same again because I'm that good. I'm going to Ducati. This is the saddest point up until this season of Valentino Rossi's career. I would argue this is sadder given the expectations. Italy was on fire. And they needed this. The sport was not in a good place at this point in time. Mm -hmm. That 2011 season, we had 16 full-time bikes in MotoGP. This sport did not survive the credit crunch very well. If I know I make an argument that if it wasn't for Valentino Rossi, the sport might have internally collapsed by now because Rossi was able to drive enough people in to watch every week. Um, Kawasaki had quit. Suzuki had quit. We were down to three factories, effectively. Um, the sport... If you weren't on an orange bike Rossi. or a blue bike, why are you here? Basically, at that point. And the, the sport had to <coughs> radically bear themselves and change the rules to give other factories a chance. Well, you know, the CRT rule era. Um, but, yeah, 2011 was not a good time for MotoGP, but we all sat and hoped that Valentino Rossi and the Ducati would bring the glory days back to the big red machine. It didn't. What? <laughs> 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 And Cam's gone. <laughs> well, um, the signs weren't good early on when Valentino Rossi was multiple seconds off the pace in preseason testing. Yeah. You're thinking, it, it can't be the broken leg. No, because no, it wasn't the broken leg. I mean, he came back in 2010 and won races. Yeah. More or less came back on form. Yeah, it was... It was a Ducati Desmondeschi that had gotten worse and worse year on year during the aforementioned stoner era we were talking about about half a decade prior. Ducati would never have it this good 
until maybe some guy called Andrea rolls up. So it's, it's not yeah. for a few years yet. Yeah, the um, uh, the Desmo Sedici had um, just not developed because every time Casey Stoner told them, "Hey, the bike needs to be fixed," they added more horsepower. And then they thought the solution to all their problem. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna one up everyone on the chassis. We're gonna leave the steel trellis frame. Shout out to KTM behind. And we're gonna make a full carbon fiber frame bike. Old. Well, carbon fiber is great. Carbon fiber is great at most things. It revolutionized all four wheel racing. There's a problem with carbon fiber. It dampens. It dampens physical force going through it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's far stiffer than steel. It's far stiffer than steel. And though you can tune it, and Ducati, bless their hearts, tried to tune it to transmit enough force to get some information to the rider, there was no info from the front tire coming up. Through the handle, through the handlebars of these bikes, they were wide. They were riding a wet noodle. No feeling in the bike that can't turn. And like, you you had no idea whether where the front end was. You had no idea if it was about to go or not. There was just no information. I'm amazed that Valentino Rossi got multiple podiums. You see, by then they threw most of that away. Yeah. Yeah, this experiment did not work. It was a spectacular failure. Rossi did not win a single race in the two years he was at Ducati, let alone contending for a championship. He went winless for two plus years, the entire length of the Ducati contract. So much so that in 2013, he went back to Yamaha with his tail between his legs and back to the number 99, who really had become the number one guy at Yamaha because poor Ben Spees could just just couldn't compete at Jorge Lorenzo. No, oh, sorry, he King. was always in. No, meanwhile, what we should say is um, that guy who could actually ring that carbon fiber piece of shit to wins. Well, he went to Honda in 2011. Yeah, and won another, and won another and championship. <laughs> Lo and behold, uh, Honda were willing to listen to what Stoner had to say, and he annihilated the field. Yeah, yeah. Won the t- won the title by ninety points. Twenty twelve got hurt halfway through the year. Wasn't the contender in the end. Got hosed Jorge by the Lorenzo, tire change. Yeah, and Jorge Lorenzo would win his second top flight world title in twenty twelve. And now Valentino's back. Happy fun times for everybody. Um, yeah, Lorenzo's now won two world titles and now pretty much seen as the best bike rider in the world now. Um, and Rossi's back. Yay! It's just, it just like old times. It wasn't like old times. Um, mostly no. because 2013, there was one little flashpoint for Valentino. He won his first Grand Prix in three years. He won at the Aston TT and that was a nice emotional feeling. That. That <coughs> yeah, imagine yeah, nice, he went from being winning his ninth championship in utterly dominant fashion to not touching a win for three years. I will yeah. be- I will beg for one more win. And he got it. And it was so good. Don't worry. 
There's a few more coming, and it took a radical roll of the dice for it to get to that point. Rossi, by the end of 2013, was a distant fourth out of the big four we talked about with Cam earlier. If you're either on an orange bike or a blue bike, that's the only two bikes that could win in the field consistently. Yeah. Rossi was the distant fourth out of that big four at the end of 2013. This was seen as a last roll of the dice. He and Jeremy Burgess, his crew chief for 14 years, parted ways. Yeah, you know, he brought, much like the move from Honda to Yamaha, he brought some of his people, including Jeremy, to Ducati, and it it just did not work. And even when they came back to Yamaha, you have to remember, at this point, we've gone back to the 1,000cc bikes. The 800ccs were uh, dropped at the end of 2011. And it just didn't work uh, with with Burgess. He it feels like it feels like his way of thinking regarding how the bike was set up was just out of date. Yeah, it was seen as I don't this writer may or may not have said it was Rossi's last roll of the dice, a desperation play, because another really, really, really talented youngster had come through in 2013 and shocked the world. His name. Hmm was Mark Marquez. You know how motorcycle riders lean on their knees to make corners? This dude leans on his knees and his elbows. That's This the dude leans on his head. head. Yeah. yeah. His entire body is off the motorcycle. When you see oh, him, man. when you see, see him in the first race of 2013, his first race on the big bike, and he's riding it, He's riding it like it's a fucking, like it's a Moto 3 bike. Yeah. Body off, barely on it, leaned over a few degrees more than everyone else. Yeah. And I have to say, Honda flubbed the uh, 800cc regulation change pretty hard. With the 1000cc regs, they got it right to start out with. Yeah. And Mar Marquez, who had the rules changed to get him in so he could ride a factory bike at the tender age of 20, became MotoGP's youngest ever world champion um, in 2013, beating Jorge Lorenzo and Danny Pedrosa in their primes to shock the world. And like, oh my God, we got a 20-year-old phenom as world champion. 2014 was more of the same. Uh, oh, it was a lot more of the same. Yeah, Marquez won the first 10 rounds in a row. It that record of 11 wins in a season, bye-bye. Yeah, won 12 that year. Um, 13, wasn't it? Was, yeah, well, actually, quite, take that back. Quite right. It was 13 races he'd won that season. It was still a record. Most wins ever in a Grand Prix season. Marquez had won two world titles, but sneakily, underneath the radar... Valentino Rossi had snuck a couple of wins in and was second in the championship. Yeah. Yamaha was smelling world title again. They were like, ooh, hang on. We've got something here. Call forth probably Rossi's greatest rivalry. Or at least, certainly, his greatest flashpoint. Rossi versus Marquez in the 2015 season. And uh, it started out in an unfair. In, in an unfamiliar way, like, I did not know this until this week, that, look, turns out, growing up, Mark Marquez's two favorite riders ever was Danny Pedrosa and Valentino Rossi. He loved Pedrosa's riding style, and he loved Rossi's showmanship. Yeah. You know, Marquez had met Rossi as a child, you know, 
taken photographs together, all of that. And how surreal Ross, is it to think that he's going to be racing against him for wins, for championships? You know, when I got back in the sport in 2013, nothing was more wholesome than seeing Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez, bump fish and shake hands after every race. It was like, this is the kind of stuff that young riders aspire for, to have the yeah. chance to prove their mettle against their childhood heroes. Yeah. And Rossi extended the olive branch. He said, hey, Marquez, want to come down to my ranch and have a dirt bike race with some, some of my famous friends? And then Marquez was like, sure. Hang on. Uh, is that HRC? Um, lads, can you do me a favor? Could you just, like, send the crew round? Um, apparently, I'm racing Valentino Rossi on dirt this week. Um, I kind of want to win this one, you know. Send your best people. And that's just it. Are you race to win or you don't race at all? And that's just <laughs> it. For all the aggression and the will to win that Valentino Rossi had, and boy, did he have it. Yeah. He created a monster unknowingly waiting in the wings. Yeah. Marquez took an entire HRC crew to that ranch race. And Rossi apparently did not like that. And they stopped being friends quite soon after that. And hey, by the time we got to 2015, Honda had slipped as a manufacturer. Honda it botched went... the 2015 bike bad and has still yet to recover from it. Yeah. Marquez basically was an antagonist more than a contender. He still won five races that season, but he had six DNFs. Wasn't going to be challenging for the championship. It was too inconsistent. Yeah, the real you know, fight for that, was, yeah. What I say okay. is, Valentino created a monster unknowingly in that that will to win was about ten times as strong in Marquez as anyone else, and he was going to ridiculous lengths, including repeatedly crashing the bike in practice to find the limit to win. Yeah, crash at Argentina trying to win the race. Yep. Yeah, was put on the wrong tire and was then Rossi gunned him down on the final lap. Marquez ran into his rear wheel trying to counter attack on the final lap of that race. That was when Rossi called him an all or nothing rider. There was another flashpoint in 2015. Marquez and Rossi <coughs> for the win of Lassen goes to the final corner. That final infamous chicane sequence. Marquez takes a lunge at the apex. Rossi's like, I don't want these problems. I'm going to cut the final chicane and go on to win. Marquez launched a protest. It was rejected um, by the stewards. And uh, those two were no longer on speaking terms by that point in time. Yeah. But uh, the real heavy-duty parts of this beef, while Rossi and Lorenzo were fighting for a championship in their own right, happened that one of the greatest races ever, Phillip Island, Ah, uh, in that year, we've we've done an entire podcast on this race. We, we should do another one. We should do we like should, another three on this podcast. Do yeah. it again. Why not? It was it was great. Oh I mean, my look, god! Uh, Mark Marquez, Jorge Lorenzo, Valentino Rossi, and some guy named Ianone. I wonder whatever happened to him. Yeah, he's on Strictly Come. He's on Strictly Come Dancing now. You know, he's on the Italian. Apparently, he looks great on it. Ugh. Well, if there's one thing that Andrea Iannone knew how to do, it was model. Yes. All of these riders beating each other into the dirt for an entire race. A race so good, it just made my TV go dim. <laughs> there we go. In, in, 
it's yeah go back and find the, the the race we did on that if you want a full breakdown and actually us re-watching that race in its entirety it's a classic it's well worth going out of your way to watch it's in my opinion it's the greatest moto gp race of all time it's a race that marquez would go on to win with, with you know <laughs> it's what i called the lap of the gods where Marquez on the final lap of that race was a second off the win, had to pass Andrea Rianoni, catch up to Jorge Lorenzo, pass Jorge Lorenzo over Lukey Heights, and win on the final lap, setting the fastest lap of the Grand Prix to do it. That's very important, because Mark himself had said right after the race, in his own words, he was saving the front tire, the ultra-critical part of that year's Honda. Mm-hmm. For one last roll of the dice for that win. Yeah. He said I was going to win this race or I was going to crash trying, basically, is what is what he basically boiled down to. A certain someone in that field who was in that group won Valentino Rossi for Ross, the thought that Marquez was doing it on purpose to mess up his championship. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah, I think someone wrote a book about this. Bounty to Rossi feels a 10th title potentially slipping out of his grasp. And he is not going to let some aspiring fan of his, some ascended fan of his, take play a role in taking that away from him. Not without playing some mind games first. No. And that's exactly where it went, because in the... Media pen for the, was it the Malaysian Grand Prix? Of course it was the Malaysian Grand Prix. He walks in with his crew with a book of telemetry trying to prove to everybody that Mark Marquez was deliberately slowing the field down to cost him the championship. And not only that, he questioned whether Mark was ever truly a fan of his. Are the most formative, the most formative individual outside of his own circle in creating Mark Marquez, the MotoGP rider? Yeah, it was, it was sheer mind games. Like you, you think Hamilton now is mind games? It got personal. Like Rossi was out there coming out with spectacular quotes about. Was Marquez ever even a fan of mine? I think he's favoring Lorenzo to win the title so he can keep it in Spain. You know, here's the telemetry. I think Marquez was slowing me down on purpose, even though Lorenzo led the vast majority of that race. I was say, and the, th- the flaw in this whole theory is that Mark Marquez pulled out one of the greatest laps we've ever seen to prevent Lorenzo winning that race. Yeah, welcome, welcome to the 201 course on gaslighting your competitive rival. <laughs> because <laughs> oh, i knew well. it was getting down to and this was a race i was staying up late anyway uh, i was like i was late i couldn't get to sleep i might as well watch the malaysian grand prix and here's yeah. what it was the moment crystallized in time for us mark marquez said you know, forget all the conspiracy shit i myself don't think he was trying to keep the championship in spain I don't think he was trying to fuck with Valentino beyond typical sportsmanship, gamesmanship. Mark Marquez said something in his own head in 2015 at Malaysia. Oh, you thought Phillip Island was me fucking with you? No, 
this is me fucking with you. Right. If you ever rewatch that race, which it may or may not be on YouTube if you know where to look, um, it is. I'll tell you that the recap has 91 million views. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ! Highlights this. <laughs> if you need to know how incendiary a moment this was, when Marquez and Rossi are racing each other lap after lap, Marquez doesn't need to do this. He wants to do this. You thought last race one. was fucking with you. No, this is me fucking with you. Nine, at the start of the... Yes. 91! 91 million views? Holy shit! Um, look, if you've ever watched that race, <laughs> given the amount of views you probably have without even realizing... Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the listeners of this podcast and the views of that video are a circle. Look at our right. studio Discord. I <laughs> Yeah, he wasn't oh. joking. 91.1 million views. He wasn't kidding. Uh, the worst kidding. thing is I knew he wasn't joking. <laughs> J- if just, you watch that just race, just a bit of reference, the highlights to the 2016 Spanish Formula One Grand Prix has 1.4 ah, yes. million views. Yeah, wow. <laughs> motorsport in ge- what is a moment in motorsport with more just like YouTube clicks than this one? Yeah, this was thermonuclear. If you watch that Sepang race, Marquez raced Rossi hard. We're talking. He didn't race him hard. He raced him like he would in a video game. Yeah. He would pass he him, him ultra hard. Sl- he slowed him down, got back oh, behind him, him, and then would block pass him again. Yeah. He he, he decided that Valentino Rossi was gonna pay for, frankly, calling out him as a motorcycle rider at the fundamental level. Right. And. Well, Valentino didn't take too kindly to that. There is a there is a critical scene about two minutes before the end point where Rossi looks behind him with an arm out like this going, what are you doing to Marquez, basically? And then I think something in Rossi's mind just snaps because mm-hmm. they're going down the penultimate corner. This it's a double apex right-hander down the hill. On a racetrack at over 200 miles an hour. Pick a fight with Mark Marquez at your peril. That's what Valentino Rossi did in the pre-event press conference. Some of the harshest comments we've ever heard from the nine times world champion aimed at Mark Marquez. No way through for Rossi this time up at turn number four. Jorge Lorenzo now is 2.7 seconds clear of this battle. Lorenzo still trying to put pressure on Danny Pedrosa, who's still leading by six tenths of a second through five. Back with this epic, this intriguing, this exhilarating battle between Mark Marquez and Rossi. Here comes Rossi once again. Four points it is in the World Championship. But this could well, well change. Take a breath. Open your eyes. This is the battle of the season. This is personal. Pedrosa and Lorenzo. Here comes Rossi on the brakes again. Even Valentino Rossi, and he runs it a little bit wide. Even Rossi couldn't get up the inside of Marquez, but he closes once again as they come through the first turn. And Rossi gets up the inside, and Rossi is back into third place. What can Marquez do side by side? They come! 
Oh, Marquez thought about riding around the outside of Rossi at turn 12. Brave in the extreme, that would have been... He rides around the outside of him at turn 13 instead. He absolutely mugs Rossi on the outside. Rossi looks really close. Oh, oh Marquez Rossi, Marquez is Rossi was... Well, you've got to say, Valentino Rossi looks over his left shoulder. He slowed right down in turn number 14. There was contact between Marquez, a shake of the head from Mark Marquez, and you feel with some justification. Rossi knows Marquez likes to take the wider line through looks that double right-hander. Look over his yeah, shoulder, look for him. Yeah, he looks once behind him. He looks twice behind him. He knows where Marquez is in relation to him. Rossi deliberately ignores the apex, which is about 30 feet in that direction, <laughs> runs Marquez off the track, and Rossi's foot slips off the peg, and Marquez goes it. down. He swung his knee out and kicked his motorcycle down. Marquez is out of the race. Valentino Rossi continues. He finishes the race in third. Lorenzo and Pedrosa are long gone. Yeah, I think Pedrosa won that race by, like, by a mile. And Five then um, th this war, in history. this war of two of the fastest riders in the world, and they were, what, half, they, they were at that point, what, a quarter of a minute behind the lead two when the flashpoint yeah. happened? Yeah. It's the race. It's, it's, it's the, the races. These is the races. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, Livio Supo at Honda immediately marched down to race direction. And was like, we want this review now. And Research was like, after the race, after the race. Yamaha's like, we're not holding comment. Look, Lorenzo is jumping up and down in Park Ferme with a second place like he's won the championship. He has had no idea what's happened behind him. He gets a whisper in the ear between that and the Park Ferme. Valentino Rossi no-shows the post-race press conference. I've never seen that in 20 years of bike racing. No. Someone does not go to the well, bike racing. Valentino race. Rossi always has something to say. Yeah. There was nothing to debrief. say after this race. Oh, he in the debrief, he said a lot. Yeah, he did the post-race debrief, but he did not do the post-race press conference. He, he no-showed it. Pedrosa was booed on the podium for winning. Nothing to do with him. Completely unfair from, from the, the Malaysian fans. In they were still mad about Estorolo 6. Clearly. Um, you know, and Rossi laid into Marquez after that race in his post-race debrief. He was talking about how Marquez had done it on purpose. Marquez was trying to sabotage him. Now he was adamant he was trying to help Lorenzo win the title. He's not a fan of mine. Don't know what I've done to deserve this. I still remember watching the video of this. And Neil Hodgson, who works for BT Sport as a player, <coughs> got us won the World Superbike Championship. One of the best British bike riders of all time. You may see him now on BT Sports coverage on a weekly basis. He, Valentino Rossi is Neil Hodson's hero. Hodson is holding his microphone in horror at what he's hearing here because he can't believe what Rossi is coming out. I can still picture the, the vision of it in my head. This incident goes thermonuclear on social media, on YouTube, on everywhere. This was the biggest story in world sport for a week. Which never happened. We had government Moto officials going to bat for their mans. Yeah, we had Valentino yeah, Rossi fans yeah. stalking Marquez's family. Yeah. And vandalize his house. Yeah. 
the Italian media was stalking Marquez. Government officials were defending their mans in government offices. Formula One drivers were chipping in. I remember Sebastian Vettel and Felipe Massa were giving their two cents. I remember every bike race, every, every bike racing personality worth a damn was commenting on it. Casey Stoner was. Jamie McWilliams was. This went mainstream. was. It, it was the most mainstream moment in MotoGP history. This is a niche sport we're talking about here. For one week and one week only, it was the biggest story in town. It was unprecedented. We'd never seen, and we'll probably never see anything like it again. No, and the the amount, the discourse during and after the fact, which still continues to this day in some uh, terrifying yellow circles. Um, mm. It can't, like, I don't think MotoGP will ever allow it to happen again. No, 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 never. It's, it, it was lightning in a bottle. It was the biggest upstart talent the sport had ever seen against its greatest ever rider and cultural god. And and god had been hit with force hammer because Rossi had... Because he had a penalty point from earlier on in the season when he had hit Lorenzo in, <coughs> him in qualifying at Misano, he was, given a, he was given three penalty points for the incident with Marquez for irresponsible riding... Which forced a back of the grid start. Which was the, the lightest thing is, right? He didn't actually get a penalty no. for the incident. No. He got a penalty he got the penalty point accumulation that everyone's yes. so scared of with Formula One and the race ban that looms over people but never happens. Which a rule which by the way, they immediately changed after this season. Can't imagine why. Um <laughs> And this was um, such a big deal that Rossi tried calling an emergency meeting with the Court of Arbitration for Sport going into that final round at Valencia. So, it was like, so, oh, so literally bypassing all of the FIM's built-in judiciary and taking it all the way to the top. He brought it yep, all the yep. way to the top with no build-up to try and get this penalty overturned because... And we'll talk about it later. This effectively decided the championship that was probably not going to go his way anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it meant that he started from the back at the final race of the season, where again we're still in the era of unless you're on a power track. Uh, if you're not on an orange bike or a blue bike, why are you here? And exactly. combine that with Valencia, where it's impossible, where it's very, very difficult to pass <clears> either way, like. Either way, it was not going to go good. Uh, Jorge no. Lorenzo was setting it up to overturn this championship by whittling that points lead down over the three races prior. Uh, this this was basically like a death sentence to mm-hmm. it was title, effectively. Title People need to understand, right, how big the performance gap was between the two Japanese factories at the top and everyone else. You were all spoiled. Yeah. For competitive balance that by the time by but, rossi tore through the field at a track you cannot pass at worth a damn and then was just stuck yeah. in no man's land riding away from everyone behind him but unable to make any inroads on the top three i wanted rossi yeah. to win that and be, title i did and that because of that like and that. because lorenzo would go on to win the final race of the season uh Controversially, because everyone was like, why didn't Marquez dive bomb the shit out of him like he does every other round? Um, Lorenzo. The, Honda, the, the 2015 race. Honda with dick all acceleration that was getting gapped three bike links every time they came up out of a turn. 
yeah, but everybody thought like, oh, you know, it's a conspiracy. They're keeping the title in Spain, etc. Lorenzo would go on to win the race and win the championship. His third championship in the top flight, fifth overall. Rossi missed out by five points. <coughs> Rossi no-showed the award-giving ceremony at the end of the season and basically locked himself in his motorhome in anger after that because he thought that was number 10 and it didn't happen for him. And everybody blamed Marquez for it, not only because of the incident in the clash, but also because apparently he was going out of his way to help Lorenzo win the title. You know, Mark and Lorenzo are on record as not being the best of friends. Not really. You know, they're not mates at all in the, in that sense. Like, they had beef in 2013 when Marquez punted Lorenzo in his own corner at her F. You know, like Marcus you never want to get a... taken out at your own corner on a racetrack. It no. feels like that's kind of a kiss of death. It is. <laughs> <laughs> they still don't get along now, Marquez and Rossi. Uh, I remember many an interview with BT Sport where Rossi, had, like a year afterwards, yeah, at I think we're well, 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 before the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because well, well, Argentina twenty eighteen happened. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're kind of go through that because. Twenty. What, what was it? What year was it that we lost? Um, was it Louis? Was it Louis, Louis Salam? Salam. Twenty sixteen. I want to say twenty sixteen. <laughs> and um, they should count <clears> that. <throat> they had kind of buried the hatchet because at that point, you know, you lose one of your fellow competitors. It's not really worth being mad at one another over it. And then Argentina 2018 happened where Mark got the reddest mist that he has ever gotten, rode through the field, seconds a lap faster than everyone else, hmm. and knocked some people down along the way, including one Valentino Rossi. Yeah. Marquez tried to go to Yamaha to apologize and was basically told to fuck off. <coughs> Um, bye, bye. Was told bye. was told in no uncertain terms that a Marquez will never ride a Yamaha. <laughs> yeah, that includes your brother. Uh, <laughs> you know, like he was basically told no Marquez will ever ride a Yamaha ever again. Yulin Jarvis had enough of Marquez's shit basically mm. at that point in time. And I said this to Cam just before we started recording this episode. Rossi had his big retirement in 2021, which we'll get to in a minute. The one prolific figure in bike racing who did not say a goddamn word about Rossi's retirement at all was Mark Marquez. What does that tell you? I look at it like this. Um, what's the Melandry quote? Valentino Rossi is your friend until you start winning. And that is true with most racing drivers that you compete against. And riders. The problem with Valentino versus Mark was always that <clears throat> Valentino rewrote the book. He wrote the book on aggressive riding and straddling the limit. And a little kid in Spain watched that growing up thinking, well, anything he can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And when these two met in a real head-to-head -head championship, Mark was more than willing to give everything that Valentino did to everyone else for 15 years right back to him. Mm -hmm. And instead of the mind games getting to him, 
instead of the little slights in the media getting in Mark's head, he just threw it all back in Valentino's face, which culminated in the kick. I don't think this is a case of don't mate your heroes. I think this is more of a case of don't put your heroes on a pedestal. If it, don't don't form like unhealthy <clears throat> parasocial relationships with people you barely know, <clears throat> right? Because yeah. sometimes you will end up just reenacting Road Rash for the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis or 3D or PlayStation, depending on your choice of pre- console preference, in an actual World Grand Prix motorcycle race. Yeah, not ideal. It's not ideal. I mean. We can tie up a lot of the other loose ends in Rossi's career. His final win came in 2017. The uh, the Dutch team. Well, and I'll go even before that. Is that the the fallout from 2015 and the effect that had on Yamaha, where the way Yamaha felt internally was Rossi should have won that title. They barely Mm -hmm. celebrated Lorenzo's title. Yeah. And not only did that eventually cause him to leave, um, and we know how that ended uh, in the last couple years of his own career, those two, there was so much bad blood within that camp between those two riders that despite having by far the best bike still in 2016 and a still-informed Lorenzo and Rossi, they were so caught up with beating each other that despite the title being there for the taking, Mark wrapped it up early because those two kept crashing watching each other instead of watching the real com- competition yeah what it three rounds early at Mateo <laughs> on his backyard um, on a pig yeah. of a motorcycle yeah Marquez would go on to win 2016's world title 2017's 18's and 19's world title uh, Rossi would only ever win one more round after 2016 and that was the Assen TT, uh, if a race he won at ten times in his career, it was a great race. Him battling Petrix in the wet and what have you, but at this point, Rossi had started showing signs of decline. He was no longer a guy that was consistently able to to challenge for Grand Prix wins. He was, you know, up there in his upper thirties now, and the sport had gotten younger faster more aggressive another italian had become the the, the main challenger andrea de vizioso um whatever yeah, great the, career uh, stuff. you know we talked to quite a bit this podcast about the competitive gap in moto gp where mm. after 2007 those two japanese manufacturers just ran away and there was nothing anyone could do about it well the spec ecu came in yeah big flashpoint Big flashpoint because when that happened, Honda and Ducati made it a point to hire anyone they could to try and understand the spec ECU. Yeah. Try and build it, kind of build their bike to adapt to it better. Yamaha wanted to do it all in house. And between that and Valentino's slow decline. And the introduction is some guy named Maverick, who yeah. was always fast but never could quite uh, put it together. Mm. And uh, we know what we know where that ended up with Yamaha. Yamaha were just not the same until really this year. And even this yeah. year, they had one quality entry in the field. Yeah, 2015 was the last Yamaha World Title win of any kind until 2021, when Fabio Quartararo became World <laughs> Champion this very year. 
2020, we all saw that Yamaha hired said Quattararo to take Rossi's factory seats after 15 years of service. Rossi <coughs> had, had to walk away from the factory Yamaha team. Apparently, Lin Jarvis was like, Rossi, we need you to make a call. We want to sign this Fabio kid. Have it go. Please make a decision on your future. Rossi Funny how like, that changed. Nope. <laughs> and then the Yamaha was like, well, you've given us no choice. We're signing Fabio. Oh, hey, hey, how's it going, Fabio? And then Rossi had to go to the satellite Patronus team and to ride out the last two seasons of his career. Again, they were not much to write home about, unfortunately. Uh, a lot of tenths, a lot of twelfths, a lot of back-of-the-point sorts finishes. Until Shame is he had a couple... He had a couple races where he could have grabbed those last couple wins, and they just just didn't happened. work out for him. Indeed. And that's kind of where we're at now. You know, that Rossi, 420 <laughs> races later, a storied career, came to an end this past November uh, at Valencia. And... Uh, Talk a little. We've got to talk a little bit about the legacy of, of the man himself as we as we come to the end of our Rossi retrospective a little bit. Um, did anybody see first to kick the section? Did anybody see the leaving video that Dorna put together after Rossi crossed the checkered flag? Oh no, I haven't. Oh, it's 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 <laughs> it is a who's who of major sporting and worldwide stars. You've got Tom Tom Cruise is the first guy you see. Tom Cruise was like, congrats, Rossi, on the legendary career. Roger Federer was in it. Rafa Nadal was in it. Chris Hemsworth <coughs> himself was in there. You know, Mick, Mick Doohan was in there. Lewis Hamilton mm. was in there. Max Verstappen was in there. For some reason, Stefano Domenicali was in there. Don't know well, remember, a little crossover test that we didn't talk yes. about in 2008. Domenicali was running the Ferrari Formula One team. Rossi, in fact, tested for Ferrari. Yeah, good, point. good point. Yeah, Stefano was Wasn't in there. Wasn't half bad. Wasn't yeah, half and bad, then yeah. after his time at Ferrari, Domenicali, for a brief period, ran Audi, who, a subsidiary of Audi, Ducati. Yeah, well, was it was it? I, uh, it wasn't there when Rossi was there, and I think that's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, Stefano was both in there. Yeah, Stefano was in there, Chris Hemsworth. Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, not the twat at Manchester United. Um, <laughs> he was, he Look, was there. Look, I think the big thing is mm. when you see that number in that font and that color, even if you know nothing, about racing you know who that is yeah i've never seen a leaving montage like that before with so many celebrity endorsements in a sport like you, that, well that was a who's who of some of the greatest sporting names you'll ever hear some of the greatest actors and high profile people you will ever see keanu reeves at the end saying viva 46 and you know how big a bite nut keanu reeves is um you know one of the most all-round likable dudes in hollywood um god it it's I, I cannot stress this enough. The man's a cultural icon. You think yeah. of biking culture, you think of the yellow, and you think of number 46. It's, it, it is as simple as that. I remember a quick, a quick story. I've been to British Superbikes twice at Brands Hatch um, with old friend of the show, Adam Johnson, a couple of times. And it's a domestic series. It's a niche of a niche. 
there were some jackets down there for Leon Haslam for Kawasaki. There were some there for Josh Brooks for Yamaha at the time. Half the crowd was in Rossi merch. Like, it was blue Yamaha jackets or yellow t-shirts. And then I went to the merch stands. They had all the Rossi gear you could possibly hope for there. They were the only guy that had the big sizes, which is what I fit because I'm like a a 2XL. I couldn't get a Marquez shirt and a 2XL, but I could get a Rossi jacket and a 2XL if I wanted to. The man is bike racing. It is as simple as that. And he... I think saved. I think he saved this sport. I really do. And I think his legacy is MotoGP as we know it. You think we just spent this whole time, the last like thirty minutes or an hour, just shitting on the dude for 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 putting pain on other people? In reality, we're just like, yeah, this happened, but we also didn't lose perspective. Fact: this dude pretty much is MotoGP and transcends the sport beyond a level that any other rider has come before or since. Yeah, we like. I still remember to this day growing up, knowing that World Superbikes was the dominant series in bike racing when I grew up as a kid in the late nineties. For me, the poster wasn't Valentino Rossi; it was Carl Fogarty, and the number one Scarlet Red Ducati nine nine six. He was a national hero. Well, it was probably so much to the Americans, it won't be so relevant to them, but to us in the UK, Foggy was a hero. They loved him in World Superbikes in the 90s. He had video games named after him. It was a huge deal in the UK. I say, like, number one, number one rule of being the most popular driver or rider, have a video game. Damn straight. And, and Valentino Rossi them. has a video game. Valentino Rossi, the game. Yes, the full milestone experience. I mean, I grew up in a time where it was Carl Fogarty, Troy Corsa. Colin Edwards in World Superbikes, Troy Bayliss. People came over to MotoGP to race against Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi was the entire catalyst that made the sport what it is today. People remember the race wins, the rivalries, the celebrations were legendary. We've never had a showman like that. Like, today, it's gold helmets galore and maybe some augmented reality. And that, I think, is very important to it. (laughs) He was dominant. He was as dominant as anyone's ever been in the sport. Mm. But he made it a point to keep it entertaining. Mm. Which is quite terrifying when you think that he oftentimes would wait until the last lap of a race just to keep it entertaining and then ride by someone and win by like a second yeah i i still remember to this day when he won that race in philip island in 03 where he won by 15 seconds despite having a 10 second time penalty and he said it was the only race he'd ever been at 100 percent from the very start he knew yeah. exactly what he was doing he knew how to captivate people he knew how to sell himself he knew what made people tick as a bike fan and it's legendary like that brand is iconic we talked about it at the start of the show his merch <coughs> still sells 30 million plus a year you know it's- much in the same way where if you, you don't need to know a lick of basketball to see the jump man and know michael jordan you see the yellow 46 and you know valentino rossi yeah it's it's crazy, you know, from the Portaloo celebration to the you know, oh, Snow God. White and the Seven Dwarfs for the seven world titles, the bowling face pins, helmet. The, the, the face helmet, you know, the Viagra helmet, you know, um, 
you know, the 100 win banner. The shark helmet. The, the shark helmet, you know, God, the Angel Nieto moment where he tied his 90 wins and he, had, and he brought Angel Nieto out of the crowd to ride a lap with him. That's genius stuff. Like, he inspired, like, famous celebrations like Marquez rolling the six dice and the video game and the pool table when he won world title number eight. That's all Rossi's gear. You could see the inspiration in that. Like, we've never had a showman like that before. We've like, And I don't think we ever will again. It was lightning in a bottle for that man. And, and he's lucky in a sense that MotoGP is in a far better place than what it was when he first joined back in 2000. And it's in a sport where it's never looked better as far as I'm concerned in terms of a competitive standpoint, from a riding talent standpoint. Dudes at the front of the field as well. Fabio's a lovely kid. And look, I saw the clip the other day, I know King did, of Fabio Cotterora getting a ceremonial kickoff in a PSG game and hugging it out with Kylian Mbappe. I'm just like... Yeah, Fabio's yeah. liked in France. I'm, 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 I'm down for this. And I love that BT Sport didn't have a fucking clue who he was, which I thought was hilarious, given that they have the rights to the sport in the UK. Makes you think, don't it? But, um, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's laughable. But as a tangent to that note, it is also quite, and this for me, per personal level, I think the greatest part of Valentino Rossi's legacy, the academy and the future of Italian motorcycle racing is in very, very good hands. Um, you, you look Let's at the see, names. We can of, reel off some names here, and you might yeah. recognize a few. Let's start at the top with the guy who won Valentino Rossi's last race, your your new MotoGP championship runner-up, Francesco Bagnaia. How about last year's MotoGP championship runner-up, Frankie Morbidelli? How about mm. Marco Bezzecchi? Luca Marini? Lorenzo Baldessari, Celestino Vietti, Dennis Foggia, Niccolo Antonelli. Those are all the successes, and there's going to be more. Every single main that has at least one races in a world, at world championship level. He has the Didn't even mention Andrea Mina. Yeah, like, Bagnaia is probably going to be walking into 22 as championship favorite, which, that's wonderful. Morbidelli is an incredible talent, and one of the most likable people in the sport, one of the few people that actually seems to give a shit about GP and beyond GP in terms of issues of social issues as well. Incredibly likable young man. Bezeki's fast as hell. Marini's, you know, a solid Moto GP rider, but he has six Moto 2 wins. That's hard in Moto 2. That 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 series is fucking cutthroat. But like like to win six Grand Prix in that class is no easy feat whatsoever. Trust me on this. The future of Italian motorsport is in such a bright place right now and it's all thanks to Valentino he inspired an entire generation of young Italians to give bike racing a go and it's no coincidence they might be the strongest country in bike racing now pound for pound in the world today between them and the Spanish it's very close um, between Spain and guys like Marquez and Mir and Alex Rins etc but Italy is now a staple part of this sport thanks to Valentino that is some talent that has come through his ranks. Italy and, loved it some bike racing before, but now they really, really dig it. Yeah, they're getting they're getting on mini motos at age three. It's it's wild at the moment. That just gets us to Valentino's future himself. I mean, he's no longer bike racing. He was people were begging for him to ride for his own team next year. 
He said no. Are we talking about a future in GT racing for Valentino Rossi going forward? Welcome Probably. to the family, Valentino. Stop kicking people. Though, <laughs> the one side note, like, in over the past couple of years that people were hoping for that, for the most of the latter part of his career, I mean, he, he had some sporadic appearances before then, but from, like, 2010 onward, he was uh, a constant fixture at the, at the Monza Rally show at the end of every year. I think he still holds the record for most wins of the Monza Rally. And mm. due to the pandemic, the Monza Rally for the last two seasons has been the WRC finale, and people have always hoped that there would be an opportunity that Rossi would be able to participate <laughs> in the WRC season finale. Uh, even though maybe next year if the Monza Rally is still on the calendar, but <laughs> seeming like, man... Uh, another one of those missed opportunities of Rossi going wheel to wheel with Ogier. I was—I don't know if he wants that smoke. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants that smoke. Oh dear, no. But I found, I found some on board of like Valentino Rossi's first world rally. He's, he's in a Peugeot two hundred six, and he—he he doesn't look terribly out of his element no. until he crashes out. But oh well, well yeah. yeah no, but on, honestly, I've seen I've seen the same clip, and anything he steps into, he's pretty good. Yeah, drove Lewis Hamilton's Formula One car as well. That was fun. Um, the the swap, as they like to call it. But uh, I mean, it's looking like he he wants to win Le Mans. That's he's made yeah. it public. That's that's his that's his now post. What a wild goal. double it would be for someone to have the Suzuka eight hours and Lamar twenty four hours on their resume. What a double that would be! But uh, hey, you know, we'll be watching certainly, and we'll be captivated if you can find a way to get on that Lamar grid. I'd be, I'd happily sit down and, and, and keep an eye on that. And I'm not even an endurance racing guy, and I, yeah. I would happily the, see the that. The talk is he may be here as soon as the Rolex twenty four Daytona. You don't have Ooh. to wait that long. And he's hoping that if he does well in a season or two in GTs, he moves up to prototypes. Yeah, and there's not many there's not many people you would go out and say, I want to take a risk on a 44-year-old novice. Well, there is this whole new prototype class coming in, and there's all kinds of customer cars being sold by a particular brand he's rumored to be linked with. It helps. It no helps. idea who. But uh, just before we get out of here, to sum it up in a sentence, Valentino Rossi, the legacy. I'll go around the, I'll go around the room. King. Oh, has to be Heretho 5. It's the easy choice. This is the races. <laughs> this is the races. <laughs> RJ. Um, to me, Valentino Rossi is a once-in-a-lifetime sporting personality that MotoGP is grateful to have had for 25 years, 26 years and counting. And I'm, it's a, it's definitely a special moment in my life to be able to watch him race through most of that. Cam? I've not existed in a world without Valentino Rossi racing on a motorcycle. I'm the young in here. Me, the legacy, the final laps of Phillip Island 2003. This was, you see, you haven't seen me try before. Mm. 
uh, for me, the saviour of MotoGP. It's as simple as that. He changed he changed he changed the entire dynamic of bike racing forever. I didn't always agree with him. I didn't always like him, but I sure as hell respected him. And this sport probably wouldn't have survived the economic collapse of 08 if it wasn't for him. And there are a lot of people in that paddock right now in MotoGP that owe that man a check. And hmm. um, motorsport will be forever grateful, I think, is probably its greatest influence, two wheels or four in my lifetime anyway, because I don't think there'll ever be another rider, racer, influencer, personality like Valentino. He's an icon. He's a cultural icon. And Valentino Rossi is... Valentino Rossi is a true original. Hey guys, Dre back from 2022 here again, just to put a neat little bow on this retrospective. I just wanted to say thank you. This is our 400th episode after all, and... After eight years of this show originally being a university final year project, as I always say, that has gone way, way out of hand. It's been incredible. The journey is still going, and I couldn't be prouder of what we have and the people I get to share this platform with. Um, so just wanted to give a few special thanks. I want a special thank you, of course, to... RJ O'Connell and Cam Buckley, my wonderful co-hosts, of course, the the incredible, the incomparable Ryan Eric King for all the input he's had, and of course he'll still be on every once in a while, but he's killing it at Jalopnik, and yeah, uh, you know, I couldn't be prouder of him. Um, I couldn't be prouder and more honoured to share this platform with such talented, wonderful partners and it's a family it really is the discord we have is a real family of friends fans and people who believe in us look i'm under no illusions there are hundreds of motorsport podcasts out there now everybody and their mother has one the fact that still so many people choose to stick with us for our personalities our humor and our perspective on all things four wheels and two is a great honor something that we never take advantage of and never take for granted so the fact you choose us is wonderful so thank you thank you to cam thank you to rj thank you to ryan eric king thanks to jason in our discord who does all the stats does all the award ballots um they've done a remarkable job in supporting the show F huge thanks to everyone on patreon who still backs us and gives us the money to keep the lights on with the website and the the, ho the hosting fees and everything this podcast runs itself thanks to you people and that's the greatest and most proudest accomplishment of all that this podcast is self-sufficient um thanks to your generosity so thank you all so much for that um and of course thank you to everyone who's listened whether this was your first time or even your 400th time or maybe even more than that i've got crazy stories of people going through our backlog and listening to every episode we've ever done since 2014 which please touch some grass but <laughs> we're also very grateful for so thank you to 
everyone that has listened over the last eight years. It's been the greatest journey I could ever wish to be on, and I'm very, very lucky to share it with some incredibly gifted and talented people, and I'm sure RJ and Cam would agree if they were here. Um, unfortunately, the nature of recordings means I'm on my own for this one, but I hope the message comes across well enough. We'll be back for episode 401 on Formula One's Singapore Grand Prix and all the controversies that come with that later on in the week. But from me, Dre Harrison, on behalf of Ryan Eric King, Cam Buckley and RJ O'Connell, thanks for everything over the last 400 episodes. Sayonara. <laughs>